What's up, everybody? This is Sharangam, and I want to welcome you to the 16th episode of the Hashishin. As always, thank you for tuning in. Wishing everybody a happy 420. We're excited to be able to bring you some new content. On today's episode, we'll be talking to none other than Nick T, who I finally had a chance to catch up with. And I'm super excited for you guys to hear. So stay tuned for that. As always, a massive thank you to our Patreon community for allowing us to continue to produce these episodes. We reached our initial goal of 50 people. We're actually at 59 now. So to each and every one of you who supported us, thank you. Shout out to our sponsors, Low Temp Plates and Rosin Evolution, both who have wonderful customer service. Low Temp Plates is running their biggest 420 sale ever. So head over to their website to check it out. It's lowtemp-plates.com. That's L-O-W-T-E-M-P-plates.com. And take advantage of their already very affordable equipment, definitely getting you the most bang for your buck. And remember, save 5% off with our code THI, which stands for The Hashish Inn, as well as with our other sponsor, Rosin Evolution, who has all your rosin needs taken care of, including screens and wash bags, which are made from the same high quality, durable food grade mesh as their screens. And due to them being full mesh, They drain easier, allowing you to better control your flow rate and putting less strain in your body. And again, you can save 5% with Rosin Evolution as well by using the code THI, standing for The Hashish Inn. So if you can, please support the companies that support us. We have some additional interviews on our Patreon site. This month, we have Scott from Taste of Cascadia and soon to come the Masonic Smoker interview. So, if you're interested in hearing some extra content, visit our Patreon. It's patreon.com backslash the hashish in. That's the hashish i n n. We also have our link in the bio. Be good, smoke good, and hope you guys enjoy this. I'm excited to be here with someone who's really turned into kind of a legend of the hash world, Nick, more commonly known as Nick T from Essential Extracts, based out of Northern California. Thank you, Nick, for coming on. Yo, many, many, many thanks for having me, brother. This has been a long time coming, and I'm blessed to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so it's funny, man. Like, I almost feel like we need to talk about it. You know, this is our third attempt in two and a half years. You know, it's kind of crazy. We were both the other day talking about how crazy it is that so much time has passed so quickly. And we initially met in 2017 in the summer. Uh, I actually came out to Denver. You were supposed to be the first guest. You gracefully had me over. And that was one thing that really has stood out to me, man. It's just like your accessibility. I don't find that a lot of people are as open about being accessible the way you are. You know, so like at that time I reached out and I was like, hey, man, you know, do you want to do this? Obviously, I had nothing to show for it. And you're like, yeah, let's do it. And literally me had me over to your house without knowing who I was. You know, I could have been some just like random dude. So, which I was. But that's so interesting to me, man. You know, I've always seen that kind of approach from you. And I'd like you to talk about that a little bit. You know, I, I feel like I've just always been a very open and trusting person, sometimes to a fault, you know, but it's who I am. I feel like I've worked really, really hard in life. And I've gotten to a place where, you know, 
I'm able to bring people into my lifestyle and I want to show people what hard work can do because I've had my ups and downs. You know, I've been the lowest in my life and I've been up to the top, to the peaks. And, you know, when I'm feeling good, I want other people around me to feel good. And uh, I guess, yeah, I'm just very inviting and open. That's cool, man. Like I said, it's, it's not something that you see commonly, especially in this industry, you know, and, and I get that, you know, it's, it's coming from a different space than it was for a long time. And, you know, people's mentality is obviously affected by that. That's a big part of it. You know, we had to hide, you know, nothing was written on paper for years. You know, this was not something that we could talk about. We were hiding in forums. And even then I was getting kicked out of forums, to be honest. And it wasn't until, you know, what, 2009, 2010, 2010, when regulations really hit in Colorado, that we were able to talk about it, you know? And I was like, whoa, I have this opportunity. I'm one of the first out here, you know? I have two options. And I wanted to promote what we were doing, you know? I wanted everyone to know. Yeah. So I do want to get into Colorado, but let's start at the beginning. So we finally got a chance to link up here, basically in the Bay. This is kind of hometown to you, right? Yeah, you know, I, I grew up here in the Bay Area. Grew up here for, yeah, half of my life, basically. I moved to Tahoe back in 2001. And from there, I feel like my travels just kind of began. Growing up here in the Bay Area, though, cannabis was extremely prevalent. I had family members that had farms up in Mendocino. Growing up, listening to reggae music and being from the Bay Area, it's around. Cannabis is, is everywhere. So at a very, very young age, I started selling cannabis, of course, smoking it, smoking a lot of it at a very young age. I think 12 years old was the first time I smoked. And so growing up with it all, all around me, it was a lifestyle choice. And from a young age, I felt like cannabis and hash was what I wanted to do. I was really, really into bubble hash for a long time. The kind of brown, pliable, earthy, almost mildewy smelling bubble hash that was popularized in Northern California, Humboldt, Mendocino. And that's what I grew up making. You know, I drive up to the farms up in Mendo. I had a few connections up there and I'd get everyone's trim. And at that point in time, this is like, I guess, the late 90s. And I'm really bad with actual time frames. So give me a couple of years back or forth. But we would drive up up north and pick up trim. And it was mainly because these farmers didn't want that on their property. They already had so much weed. They were concerned about having too much weight on their property. That was garbage to them. So they were either tossing it out on, on the side of the thing for the garbage man to pick up or, you know, giving it to us. So oftentimes we didn't pay for trim. And it was black garbage bagged. Some of it was moldy, mildewy, but you know, you got those special bags and you're like, ah, oh, this is gold. And we drive those back down from Northern California to the Bay Area to wash them. And, you know, and sometimes we were washing in hot barns and things have changed a lot since then, you know, for real. But uh, that's what really started this. And then it wasn't really until you know, I started moving around a lot more that I saw butane hash oil. And back then it was called honey oil or earwax. And I was making bubble hash, but there started to be a little bit of hype and people started talking about this gold oil. 
And, you know, at that point in time was really when it triggered, I was like, all right, I'm going to start trying to make some of this gold oil, you know, started blasting butane on the back porch and stuff. First couple times, it was really scary, you know, then we started learning a little bit of tech here and there just from word of mouth. And this is real, real early on. I think this might have been even been before you could buy a honeybee extractor on the back of high times, if anybody remembers those. But we started doing this and I started being concerned. I was like, what's in it? It still tastes like there's this butane in it and this metal taste to it. And we were making, you know, very non-viscous oil, you know, watery, watery type oil. And we had no idea what we were doing. There was definitely a lot of butane and, and other things left in that material. And so I started getting concerned and I took a trip to Amsterdam with one of my best friends at the time. And my goal was to really, really research what was this honey oil because the United States wasn't really talking about it too much. You know, people were doing it, just starting to do it. But we had seen a lot more on the shelves in Amsterdam where you could buy things legally. But we were seeing it under different names. And very soon after the launch of butane hash oil in Amsterdam, it got banned. And people started calling it different things and mixing butane oil with bubble hash and calling it jelly and things of that nature. But we started hearing about those hypes. And, you know, and so we went out to Amsterdam in 2001 to study it. And one of the only cafes and stuff that actually had some paperwork and had staff willing to talk about it was the Bluebird Cafe. Bluebird Cafe also was one of the only places that had a non-dairy milk alternative. <laughs> so I fucking love that place. But, you know, the ganja and things like that weren't my favorite, but they were willing to talk about it. And they're like, they were concerned as well. They were like, there's a lot of heavy metals in here. We saw some test results that showed a lot of butane and residual heavy metals and things like that. And I was like, okay, all right, this is, this is what I wanted to hear. I went back home to Northern California. Oh, and that was after I actually met Mila as well, that in 2001, and uh, grabbed a set of bags from her and a washing machine and got the washing machine with a press shipped out, you know, to, uh, to Cali. We started washing and my goal at that point was to create the water hash, but make it look like that butane honey oil. So we started controlling variables. We started getting fresher material and not using any of the moldier crap. We started asking the growers to buy material. And at that point, it was close trim we wanted, real close, fine sugar leaf. And we wanted it as fresh as possible. And we started seeing changes in the color of the end product. We started getting closer to the color of butane honey oil. Even the consistency started changing when we started freezing that material and using colder environments. And we actually back then started briefly talking about utilizing walk-in freezers. And there's a John Doe radio show from back in the day. And it was, John Doe was one of the first guys, Tim Martin was one of the first guys to, uh, have a cannabis radio show in our space. And uh, I, I remember talking about the walk-in freezers back then. And that that might have been like 2009, but still, you know, almost or, yeah, ten, over 10 years ago, yeah. we, we started talking about some of this technology to make water hash appear and smell and dab like the butane 
honey oil that we were seeing. And so that was, uh, I don't know, one of the big goals that I had. And that's really where this thing started. We coined the term solventless wax. Because at that time, 2009, 2008, 2009, earwax was the term that was popularized. And I mimicked the consistency. We had this guy named Paul Token. He was a personality on YouTube. And he was over at the house. And he's like, this is not water. This isn't bubble hash. This is a different thing. And uh, I think he might have even came up with part of the term. And together we, you know, came to it. And that's when solventless was born. We wanted to distinguish what we were making, the gold earwax consistency of water hash from the black, brown, mildew-smelling, pliable bubble hash that we grew up making and smoking in Northern California. Right. Yeah, that sounds like quite a journey. (laughs) Um, So let's kind of break it down into sections. So you were saying kind of late 90s is when you're first making bubble hash out here from the trash bags on the side of the road. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, late 90s, early 2000. And where did that interest come from? Like outside of just being interested in cannabis? You know, I was a young teenager and I started wanting to smoke more cannabis and started hearing about hash and it was a stronger form. And, you know, I'm a kid that can't even legally get paid yet, right? I was working at a skate shop to get in-store credit. I wanted to work so bad, but you can't legally get paid until you're 15 or 16. 15, I think, in in California. There may be some other strenuous, you know, different circumstances that weren't payment. But, you know, as a kid growing up, you know, I wanted wanted things, you know. I wanted to get out. I wanted to do things. I have an amazing relationship with my family, but I just, I was always wanting to move out into the world. And so... You know, we started needing or ha- finding a need to uh, create it rather than buy it. Right. So, as far as buying it went, what what, what was it that you could find in the Bay Area at that time, like hash wise? Bubble hash. Yeah. Yeah. Was it just more like almost like a slab, like a brick, or you know, sometimes we were actually seeing like big big like slabs that looked like it had almost been sieved or separated at one point, but nobody took care of it. So they just, it recombined and it, you know, most of the time it was just, yeah, a chunk. Oftentimes we were getting really, really wet bubble hash, like stuff just straight coming off of a, maybe two bags set on a big farm being ran in a barn. And we were just getting like wet, wet, wet hash and I remember some of it, like the ones we wanted just smelled fuely as heck. Like, we, I think that's right around the sour, you know, right when sour started really hitting, hitting Northern California. And we were looking, you're looking for those ones. But uh, we, we re- I remember putting hash in the bottom of my shoe to try and get the moisture out. I remember putting it in my back pocket and sitting on it all day to get the moisture out. So you when know, you're like literally trying to smoke this hash, but it just wouldn't even light because it was so wet no it you know i guess it depends on what you were going for a lot of people still in that generation would just be putting it on top of a bowl and not even care you know but we just started learning you know and started following the trends and seeing what worked better and you know i think pretty you know real soon after we were smoking hash on top of bowls i got into spliffs if not 
Yeah, hash spliffs. Cannabis spliff came first, first when I was 12 years old, but hash spliffs came just just a little bit later. And, uh, you know. And what kind of equipment were you guys using at that time? Bags? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a more simplistic, like two, three bag system? Well, by 2001, I got bags from Mila. Okay. Yeah. So, so it was the pollinator set. I think I had a five or even an eight bag set seven bag set okay somewhere around there so yeah, yeah they, they had already bro- broken it down quite a bit yeah within the my kind of micron range yeah 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 and you know it's interesting i was telling you earlier i saw recently the second part of the history of rosin that you were on recently and i thought you kind of touched upon a strong point when you brought up you know the idea that hash has a lot to do with oral traditions up until this point, you know, uh, whether it's just because records aren't really being kept in places where it's been done a long time or whether it's the legality affecting it being able to be something that's openly discussed. And, you know, the more I think about it, it's kind of like this is still what we're doing right here. This is still almost like an oral tradition situation with the hash where through these interviews, people are able to pass down a little bit of knowledge that 100%. they've gained, you know? So can you talk about a little bit of the knowledge that maybe not only you gained, like, since you started making hash, but all kind of throughout? Yeah. You know, and the interesting thing right now is media and, you know, social media hits so much faster than publications, you know? So a lot of the knowledge is coming out first through these interviews and through Instagram posts and stuff like that, because, you know, by the time they publish that knowledge, you know, in a book, you know, it's, it's six months to a year to longer, you know, so it's really cool where technology has taken this industry. You know, I've spoken about it a lot, but when I first visited Amsterdam and talked to Mila and she let me hang out in her warehouse space which was also like a nice little smoking lounge and just an amazing place back in the day. I bugged her. I just literally bugged her for five to seven hours a day. And she was sitting down and and explaining to me what she was doing. You know, one of the most important things that I learned from those conversations with Mila was the rinsing tech. And I'll discuss that, but it's crazy because, you know, I was making that bubble hash, you know, just little bits in the late, late, late 90s and and into the you know early 2000s before I went out there to see Mila. And we weren't getting it to bubble as much as I wanted it to. You know, some of the hash that we were making and not buying it from the farms and pressing the water out of some of the stuff we were making looked good, but it just wasn't as clean as I wanted it to be. You know, it's, this is uh, I think this might be pre-term FMCD. It was right around that time. You know, that term came out full melt clear dome. Okay. And that's what we were looking for in hash is something that was cleaner that would melt better and uh so I went to Mila and I'm you know asking her all these things and she's like are you rinsing she explained it to me and that rinsing tech really really changed game for me we were taking stuff that would barely bubble at all and just with that rinsing tech we were making full melt and the rinsing tech I speak of is After you're pulling your trichomes from the bags or whatever vessel that you're using, 
we're actually using. And, and back then it wasn't as specific, you know, she just explained, take a garden hose and spray through the bag. And I was like, well, no, isn't that going to like take all the trichomes away? Right. You know? And she was like, no, it's, uh, it's going to clean the trichomes. It'll get any of the particulate that stuck to the trichomes off of the trichomes and any of the things that weren't that exact size of micron, micron, the unit of measurement would flow through the bag. And I'm like, okay, okay. And, you know, we took it a little bit step further and we started using cold water. We started from distilled water and now we're utilizing RO water, reverse osmosis with chillers when, you know, full pressure. So, you know, it's changed a lot and you do lose a little bit of yield per se, you know, but that's the yield that you don't want in your product. And we learned that early on, which I'm extremely blessed because that was oral tradition. That was not written in any books. This was before Mila wrote her first book that she talked about this. And so I'm always giving thanks to the queen, my mentor, Mila Jansen of the Pollinator Shop and the Hemp Hotel, because she, she taught me some of these first oral traditions that really change game for me. And I think that everyone in the industry does this rinsing tech now. You know, we've created, uh, you know, different tools and stuff for it. I created a stainless steel ring stand that fit in the basin of a commercial sink where you could just wrap your bag around it rather than using the plastic bucket and barely being able to stretch it over that or just doing it by hand. We've We've created tools now for this rinsing process that didn't exist. And that's one of the other cool things that, you know, I've really been focusing on is the the actual equipment now. Because we went from using, you know, moldy bags in a hot barn at 90 degrees Fahrenheit and 75% humidity <laughs> to now using walk-in freezers with clean water and clean ice and you know game is changing every day definitely definitely frozen yeah and fresh frozen really (laughs) i'd I'd love to talk about that if if you guys want to talk about fresh frozen because that's a trippy story this goes back to 2010 2010 before 2010 the term fresh frozen didn't exist in 2010 i was working with a company called pink house And we were growing our own crops and processing in-house. And it was a beautiful situation. I was bringing in strains from all around the world. Um, In fact, it's where some of the award winners from today came from originally is some of those sketchy ass trips to Amsterdam and back and Europe and back with genetics because I was big on genetics. And we flooded uh, and and even L.A. um, right when you know, OG was getting hype in California, Colorado really didn't have too much OG. And I brought in a lot of OG Kush strains to Colorado. There's some other fucking Kings in our community that brought in OG Kush to Colorado too, that I have to pay respects to a man like Scott Reach, man like Fletcher from archive. And, uh, there were a few others that, that brought in some of those original cuts to Colorado, but I'm getting off track here. Pink house blooms was cool because we were able to run our own material or grow our own strains and and process it. And uh, we had this strain Skywalker. This was pre-Skywalker OG. This was the blueberry times Mazar cut. And it had a tendency to do some weird hermaphrodite, you know, things. And one round, I think day 45, 50, started seeing, you know, all kinds of issues, pistols and stuff like that on the flowers. And and the, the boss was like, yo, we're going to cut it down this entire row. 
you know, we don't we don't want this on the shelf. And me and uh, one of the workers in there, Stephen Lewis, were like, no, nah, don't like we want to use this for R&D. And so I took this day 50 Skywalker and we took it down and uh, we literally just actually, you know what? Let me back up. Let me back up a little bit. Because the reason that I did this is because this dude, Joseph Pietri, was on, this was like right at the onset of Facebook, you know? And we were on Facebook starting to post these pictures of gold things called earwax or, you know, solventless wax that weren't made with butane. And we had a lot of people saying, calling us liars. That's definitely butane. That's definitely made with solvents. This one guy just kept digging into me. He called himself the king of Nepal. And he was like, you don't make, you don't make real hash. I make real water hash. I make live hash. And I was like, huh, what do you mean, you know, live? And this dude was kooky. Like everyone had it out for this guy. Like he was just the guy right when the onset, we were starting to talk about these things online. He was the guy that was just going in on everybody. Like nobody, he was ostracized. But that one term live got me thinking. So now pull back up to us in Pink House 2010. I'm seeing this, these live plants. And so I'm like, huh, I want to run these live, not dried and cured like we've been getting all this trim, but live. So me and buddy Stephen Lewis actually chopped all these trees down, but we literally, we took them from the root. We like took, we cut them right at the roots so that that plant is still live. Right. You know, like literally was, the entire plant. Live. Yeah. The entire plant. And we didn't big leaf it. We didn't do any of that. We flipped it upside down into these large fuck, these large ice baths that we had created, flipped them upside down and used them as the paddle and just started beating them. And me and Steven must have been doing this for like five hours to take this whole row down, but we just charged through it. And trying to collect what we had just done was the biggest pain in the ass ever. It's when a term that we used to call bubble gum tech came up, when the hash was just too sticky to even pull out the bag. And we weren't quite using a walk-in freezer at that point. We were using a colder environment. But for this live, and especially from this strain that was very oily, we had a lot of trouble getting it off of the bags. But we were able to get it out of the bags, and we were able to sieve it down and get it on parchment paper, we barely pushed it through the sieve. I, I very you know, firmly remember just barely being able to get it through. I remember putting chunks of it in the freezer and then trying to smash some of it. Cause like we were just trying to break it up as, as small as possible. Like once it started a bubble gum, you couldn't get it through the sieve anymore. So we would freeze it and smash it over and over again. We were putting it like in between these parchment envelopes and just taking hammers and just smashing it and then back in the freezer and then in the parchment envelope and smashing it and then back in the freezer, just literally trying to break it up as fine as possible because we knew there was still water in it. Right. It was just way too sticky to deal with. And we had never seen this issue. And, you know, the yield was actually okay too. Too. You know, considering they were early plants, there was a slight green tint to, you know, some of the microns in it. But what the prime bags, the 120, the 90, the 70, the even like the 38, I remember just being crazy gold snot, like just oil, literally oil, like not like earwax. This was oil at this point. We're like, holy crap. 
you know, what do we do? Thank you, Joe. <laughs> Thank you, that crazy guy for saying live. We just ran live. Very soon after that, we wanted some more control. And that's when Fresh Frozen really came about. <laughs> and at that, you know, very, very similar time, right after we as water hash guys started doing Fresh Frozen, butane hash oil makers started being like, okay, Fresh Frozen, you know, retaining the terps. And they started doing it and calling it live, live resin. Right. And those are good friends of mine. I was in one of the rooms when they coined that term, when all three of them were in that room and coined the term live resin. And then we went along, all of us went along to Amsterdam in all one cups that that exact year. So, What uh, year? I know you said the timeline sometimes are... Yeah, I thought that was... I thought that was 2012. 2012 or so? Ah, Maybe earlier, though, because I feel like we all went to Amsterdam before 2012. Maybe 2010. In between there. (laughs) I'm pretty lit right now. So you guys were some of the first people, if not the first people, to essentially freeze material. When we went to Europe and started talking about Fresh Frozen, they had never heard of it. When I talked to Mila about Fresh Frozen, she had never heard of it. In fact, when me and Mila go on stage together, I'm always like praising her for all the things. And then, you know, she oftentimes mentions, you know, Nick T brought Fresh Frozen to us. So we hadn't seen it before that. You know, maybe there were people doing it. You know, the closest Joseph thing Pietri, who did the live plans, you know, like was, he, yeah, he, was, he was running around the world. So who knows? You know, there could have been people doing this. Um, but as far as I know, we were, we were some of the first to do it like that. And in fact, we went to a Legends of Hash. It was one of the first Legends of Hash I got invited to in Amsterdam by Sam the Skunk Man and uh, the rest of the crew. And me and Banff entered. And we entered something that looked like oil. And it was like really the first time that they had seen it. And I remember firmly that Sam the Skunk Man, Dave Watson yelled at me. He's like, you can't come in here with butane. Get that out of here. And he yelled, you know, and I was like, I was a scared little kid. This is my first time. I was just blessed to be there. And I was like, no, man, it's, it's water hash, bro. You know, I Did promise. Did you know him at all before no, then? No, okay. no, no, no. I'd heard about him for sure. I had heard all kinds of rumors. I was reading through the forums as a kid, like, and t- yeah. And eventually Mark was there and Mark was like, I've been, you know, following this guy at his water hash and a few people vouched for me and, you know, we were able to stay at the legends, but yeah, they did not believe us that that was water hash. Plus it was interesting that batch, this was right before we were really, really learning to dry everything extremely properly. And we had to get it over there. I'm not going to say that I did, but it somehow got out there and it you know was melted when it got out there and so it looked way different than even when we made it we're like holy fuck this is sick you know me and harold it's like but now kind of normally seen as just like you know some melt yeah or actually right now in today's that would have been not dried properly you know and Five, 10 days later, depending on the environment or whatever, it could have nucleated and buttered up and it could have snacked, crackled and pop. Luckily, somehow that strain that we used, that lemon OG, it almost had a very hard trichome covering that would just wick the water. So like we didn't have any of the snap crackle pot problems. It stayed very stable. And we've seen that, you know, even today in certain varieties that just are stable. 
you know, they always are glassy looking, you know? Right. Whereas other strains just, you know, those terpenes are extremely volatile and they want to fucking get out and turn it into a batter, butter type consistency. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely want to get into like, you know, trichomes and consistencies. But, you know, I'm curious, going back to the idea of Mila teaching you this washing tech, right? And then you said you guys moved on to cold water. Where did that come from? Was that just something you were, you thought of yourself essentially, or I don't from the I, I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to claim anything at this point. Right. So much of what we do even today is ancient knowledge. You know, they were making water hash and dry, you know, dry hash hundreds, thousands of years ago, and I have a horrible memory. <laughs> I've been smoking all too much hash in the last couple of days, but um, I feel like we just wanted to start controlling variables. I remember very specifically running hash in a hot barn and being like, this is not the answer. And when we did that, the hash was always more black and it, we weren't able to dry it properly. How were you drying it? Were you just kind of chopping it up? Like late 90s? No. We were taking it out of like one bag. We we're collecting it all, all in one bag. We we're taking it out of there. We were like putting it in, um, oh, what's the cheesecloth? Putting it in cheesecloth with paper towels on the outside or whatever, and, and literally just pressing water out of it. You know, that was, and you know, then we started to learn, you know, to, to actually break it up with uh, cards and stuff like that. I remember Mark teaching people to break it up on cardboard and we were already at parchment paper at that point you know so things just started evolving really really quick and yeah that that wasn't the late 90s though that was that was a little bit later on but um yeah we were definitely using like credit cards to break up the hash as much as we could at points in time but the very, very, very beginning in the late 90s, no. We were fucking taking the hash out of the bags, putting it in cheesecloth or like sacks, you know, and then bags eventually, like plastic bags in our shoes, in our back pocket. And that's, you know, that was the black pliable. Yeah. And I'm just curious, you know, because of the moisture issue, how long was that hash holding up? That? For, you know, and this goes back to like some of ancient tech and Frenchy tech. That hash was stable. Some of those strains and like especially the diesels that were coming out back then, it was always black and gooey and smelled like fuel. I mean, I remember having some that, I mean, I think I might still have a jar, to be completely honest with you, that is hardened now, but it's still black and if you just apply a little heat it'll be pliable you know right but i remember even probably five ten years ago seeing you know some hash that i had stored from back then having you know similar consistencies we were able to get a lot of the water out enough that it wouldn't mold you know right and uh yeah there's there's a lot of people you know that use a similar technique today you know with the pressing yeah i think that they're drying it a lot more properly and then pressing it right but, you know, throughout the world, people do things differently. There are people in India that are still pressing charis with rose water, you know, so. Yeah, I, that's something I had never heard of. So that's interesting. A big shout out to our Patreon community for allowing us to produce episode 16 and for supporting us in doing what we love to do. 
A big shout out to our biggest contributors, including Jensen, aka Alkaline Mango, Daniel in Connecticut, Hashmakers Union 73, the homie Garrett, Kyle, aka the Full Melt Fiend, Kevin from Lifted Indina, CV, aka the Conventional Dabber. A big shout out to Rackhams for always supporting Jendo420, whose interview is coming up in May. David from Totem Solventless in California. The homies from Mission Melts out in Massachusetts and Burp and Terps in Washington. We appreciate every single one of you. We couldn't do it without you. Now back to the episode. So, you know, you touched upon the long history of hash, you know, and I'm curious. I see you kind of almost as a, as a bridge between like old knowledge, which, you know, maybe comes from like the Mila side outside of your own personal experience and like this new style of hash, right? I see you kind of as, as a bridge. So I'm curious after all this year with, after all these years working with resin, studying resin and also being aware of kind of the historical component of hash, what do you define hashish as? The trichomes of the cannabis plant. Because I feel like dry sift is a form of hash. I feel like rosin is a form of hash. I feel like hash oil, butane hash oil, is a form of hash. So there's many different ways to manipulate that trichome from the plant. And many different methods, you know? Many different solvents and things that can create hash. So, yeah, you basically see it. Hash is equivalent to the trichome. And how... You know, back in the day, they called hash when the trichome was pressed. But today, you know, we utilize that word in calling hash oil on the butane side of things. You know, it depends on how we're, you know, defining it, how we're breaking it down. You know, in judging a lot of these cups, hash is the category just for water hash. You know, and most of these cups don't even have dry sift. And if it is, if these cups do have dry sift, dry sift has a separate category than hash. You know, so hash is right now in in our world by defined by most people as just water hash. So you see it as more of a broad term, though, not, yeah. not as narrow as just meeting water hash. Yeah, yeah. I think hash is an extremely broad term at this point. If we're talking about centuries back and moving forward into the future. Is there anything to say, I've heard you talk about mechanical separation throughout the years, whether it's in person or in videos online. Does that make any distinction? So one of the first cannabis cups that we won, there wasn't a non-solvent category. And one of the high times reps came up to me and, and, you know, and asked, how did you do this? Did you use a magnifying glass and tweezers and pluck individual trichome heads off? And I thought it was funny and no, you know, but that's really where the term mechanical separation started. I was like, no, we just mechanically separated the trichome heads. And that was my answer because, you know, I was up against all the butane guys that were utilizing a solvent to release the oils from within the head. 
you know? So I wanted to distinguish that I was mechanically separating the trichome head, not with a, a solvent. And that's where we, the argument started with us coining the term solventless because the science guys are like, water is a solvent. And, and, you know, the hash guys are like, but it's, you know, not using any of the solvents that they're using. And my answer was always that water is the universal solvent. But the way in which we are utilizing water is merely as a vessel to carry the mechanically separated trichome heads to their destination. And this is when we started learning the tech that the longer the heads sat in the water, the darker our hash was getting. It was oxidizing. We were losing terpenes. And so we started learning this tech to remove the water immediately. And that's why we started using colder water. And that's why we started you know, using colder environments because we wanted to get that water out and dry those trichomes as fast as possible to retain a lot more of those terpenes. So was it that you obviously created the environment, but was it about getting the water out or keeping the water from going in to the trichomes? It was both because if you let the hash sit in the water for too long, the water is becoming a solvent. You know, and it's starting to get into that waxy bilayer, which is not something that we learned we wanted, you know. So we wanted to make sure that the water didn't saturate those trichome heads. And then we wanted to get it out of the water and remove the water as fast as possible to retain the terpenes. Because if we let water sit in those patties for too long in a, you know, room environment, room temperature environment, we are noticing, you know, a lot more oxidization. And that's, so when you work, do you typically work quick? There's parts where we want to be patient in hash making, and there's parts where we want to move really, really fast. What would be some of the parts that you recommend people be patient? When you're utilizing a machine to do your washing, sit back and smoke a spliff. Not in a licensed facility, of course. <laughs> when you're waiting for your water and your ice to reach proper temperature, especially if you're not working in a walk-in freezer and even... If you're working on a walk-in freezer, even if you have a chiller and RO ice, we want the ice to water ratio to be perfect. And we want the temperature in that ice and water ratio to be perfect before we even add any material. So that's one of the parts where I like to tell people to be patient. Use your temp gun. Make sure it's perfect before you put the... Because originally we were putting material in, in our vessel with ice on the bottom, ice on the top, and then just pouring hose water into it, you know? And I realized quick that, you know, some of that was getting a lot more chlorophyll. Some of the hose water, that room temp or hotter water was just hitting the plant material instantly and instantly breaking off, you know, plant material, chlorophyll, making our hash greener in color or darker in color. Yeah. yeah, no, that's real interesting, man. So at what point did you start using the more controlled environments? Like what years were this? So that was, I remember talking about it in 2009 on a John Doe radio show. Very, right, very soon earlier. after I launched my brand, Essential Extracts. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about Essential Extracts. So, you know, we've mentioned it here and there. You were literally the first legal hash company, at least in the United States. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think because I've said that so much, the <laughs> auditors have fucking attacked me. <laughs> but um, yeah, I really, really pushed forward. There were a lot of companies starting up back in 2009 in Colorado. 
even before that, 2004, one of the first dispensaries existed in a church where I was one of the first 500 patients in Colorado. And I'd go to a church, listen to some education, and then walk into the back room and buy cannabis. Is that uh, 2004? That was a setup. That was a setup you had to attend, and then you yeah, got yeah, to purchase. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you could go purchase your medicine. 2004. <laughs> but you know, by 2009, people started uh, opening up operations, dispensaries, and this is pre-real regulation. This is what we call the wild, wild west in 2009, okay. when a bill passed and we all went in. You know, and. I started Essential Extracts LLC in 2009, and I started seeing other companies come up with, you know, hash names and things like that and starting to promote it. But on the back end, a lot of companies were, 2009, were using DBAs and paying taxes on, you know, consulting services and stuff like that. And I really, you know, wanted to reach out and do it the right way. And I moved to Colorado from Cali originally because I wanted protection, you know? And so I I reached out to everyone and was calling the IRS and people. And I was like, how do I pay taxes on the hashish, you know? And eventually, you know, it took a while. There was just no real answers initially. But eventually, yeah, we started paying tax on hash, on sales of hash. And yeah, it was that almost like a surreal type feeling for you at that point to pay taxes? At that point, yeah. And, and you know, we had people handling it for us, you know, and so I was just like, you know, running with it. You know, right. I was just, I was stoked that I had protection in Colorado, really was all I was thinking. Later on, and, you know, I, later on, and I, realized all the consequences of, of like being bold and, and, you know, shouting it all out because yeah, it's, it's been crazy, this industry. What were some of those consequences? If you don't mind me asking. Audits. Yeah. Since day one, since day one and back audits back to before we were even licensed because we didn't get licensing until later on. We were doing a lot of consulting work for a long time. We didn't get our own license until later on, but they back taxed as if I was a licensed company back to 2009. And they taxed 280E, which was a tax bill created by the mafia. And I wasn't a license holder and they taxed me as a license holder. And I've had to pay that consequence, you know? So. Yeah, that's harsh. Yeah. So when you first started the company, you know, one of the things I found kind of interesting about essential extracts was you seem to be like a producer, right? So like you were taking material from a bunch of different shops, groves, and processing it for them. And that was your focus. And I find that to be interesting even still now because you don't see that a lot. And in all honesty, my focus has always been to have the control of my own strains in my own cultivation and have that vertical integration. And that's what I've worked towards. I partnered with a company that had our own grow and, and our retail center. And, you know, that was my goal really is to be able to have the control and the environmental control. And unfortunately that relationship didn't work out and I wasn't even able to get the full control I wanted, but I've had to make do. And in reality, 
if you in the very beginning didn't create the highest quality product from the material you were receiving, you're not going to get that material anymore. It's going to go to the butane guys, you know? So I tried to, you know, do everything I could to make a name for myself by putting out only the highest quality. And I was sourcing only very, very, very specific grows and cultivation, yeah, cultivations in, in Colorado to produce our product because I didn't have my own in-house cultivation. Right. But I had friends that were breeding amazing strains. We were able to source, you know, gardens with genetics that I had been curating for years. And those were the grows that shine for us, you know. So let's talk about a little bit about the genetics because you brought them up a couple of times. You know, first you talked about, you know, Amsterdam being kind of maybe the source for some of these. And then you mentioned other people bringing genetics in to Colorado from different places. <laughs> So I'm curious, what were some of those genetics that you're talking about? You know, one of the funny ones that we just realized recently is this papaya strain that's been winning all these cups. People have been crossing it. It's a great hash yielder. It's not the best, you know, prettiest flower, but everyone from hydrocarbon to solventless, you know, rosin makers, everyone is utilizing this, this strain papaya. And I finally just was wanted to dig into it. And I was talking to the good homie over at Oni Seeds, who's been breeding a lot with it. And I've been using a ton of their genetics. He's been hooking me up. You know, I love them. They're crushing it over there. And somehow it came up and I asked him, I was like, so this papaya that you're using in these crosses, is it Nirvana Seeds papaya? You know, because, you know, that's if you look up, you know, the original papaya, that's as far as I've seen, that's who made that original papaya. And he's like, he's like, yeah, you know, I do believe it is Nirvana Seeds papaya, but it's a pheno we got from this place called Pink House. And I just chuckled. And, and you know, as we just mentioned, this Pink is where you watched the Pink live House was my, my partner. Yeah, yeah, those were my partners where we had our lab. So I just laughed and I was like, that's funny. I think that was one of those seed packs that I brought back from Amsterdam in early 2000s. Right. Yeah, so <laughs> Nirvana, I was going to ask, uh, Nirvana was an Amsterdam seed bank, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's crazy. Uh, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, the papaya is definitely, uh, it's been big, yeah. you know, last year and this year. And I had no idea, you know, and that's an old genetic, like early 2000s, I think. It might have been mid-2000s. Yeah, but it's almost 20 that we years got old that, now, yeah. you know? I can't, I can't remember which trip to Amsterdam we picked those up. Maybe even later, 2000. It might have been one of the later pickups. But before, you know, a lot of the, you know, clone-only stuff was flooding Colorado, we were still, you know, picking, cherry-picking Europe a lot and finding, you know, some gems. But, like, right along that same time, speaking of genetics, a good friend of mine, Johnny, OG Genetics, for me, he was one of the first guys that was making seed, OG crosses and OG Kush seeds. DNA genetics was also one of the very first, and DNA's OG18 still to this day is one of my favorite from seed OGs. And they've used it in so many crosses these days. But back then, there wasn't OG from seed. It was a clone-only strain, you know, and it was very hard to reproduce it. Swerve was working on some things. His SFV from seed is amazing. You know, speaking of Swerve, Cali Connection. But uh, there were very few people producing OG from seed. Johnny OG Genetics was one of those that was producing amazing OG from seed. 
And he was also curating a lot of clone-only cuts for me from, like, the hype of it, you know, right when Skywalker OG was going for $5,000 a cut and things like that. You know, we were getting uh, we were getting a lot of those cuts from my good friend OG Genetics. And, you know, I can list a number of them that came from him. All those planetary OGs, the Mars OG. Yeah, so many, so many. The 91 OG came from him. I ran for a long time. Just uh, a lot of OG cuts. So big up the brethren each and every time, for real. Yeah, that genetics are always so fascinating to me. And like especially this kind of cross-pollination in Europe, in the sense, you know, I talked to Mila not long ago, and we talked a little bit about that. And it's just fascinating to, like, see the influence of the earlier American genetics on the Amsterdam scene. Then, you know, it went through its own process there. And then those genetics came back and influenced the American scene to a certain degree. So that's, it's so cool kind of to, to see that. But the OGs, I'm guessing, were more... Those are more of an American. Yeah, you know, DNA genetics really, you know, big big up DNA genetics. They help push that thing in Southern California big. But originally, you know, OGs, I, I believe in Josh D and the OG Kush story and Bubba and all those cuts coming from the Florida Triangle, making their way down to L.A., gaining their hype in L.A., and then moving outward, um, you know, Oregon Kid got the cut of uh, Ghost OG, I believe it was, out in Oregon, and SFV down in SoCal, and the the Triangle from from Florida, and you know, a lot of that's oral tradition as well. And I'm not one to speak on the, right. the exact, you know. Yeah. But but then even again, I'm assuming the OGs to some degree. I mean, not necessarily, but it could have been influenced by. Another genetic that came to the U.S. from, say, somewhere like Afghanistan. Hundred percent, hundred percent, hundred percent. There's so many different theories on that one, and they all talk about it. I, I'm not even going to go there in this conversation. <laughs> OG Kush has been one of my favorite strains, and still is for so many years. It's been a staple. When I first found that first bag of OG Kush, that pound in Sonoma County. Um, I still remember Jorge hooking it up. It was out of this world. I was like, this is it. And for 10 years straight, it's all I smoked. And I was really, really blessed and lucky to be surrounded by that type of environment and in the industry that I was in, pre-legalization, post-legalization. I had some connections and been blessed to smoke that strain. Now I switch it up, you know, in the last five years, I'm trying to try, you know, all kinds of different things. And I have to, you know, I, I judge 20 cups a year right now. It's crazy. And my palate is refined and I love that. You know, it's a, it's a blessing to have this refined palate because I'm able to really distinguish things. But OG Kush is still a staple and uh, it's due to the piercing flavor, the high, you know, it's just, it's one of those strains that's going to be around forever. Yeah, and it's a good hash strain I've heard as well. You, you know, it's not be. it's not the best yielder. Generally, the clone onlys aren't the best yielder, but it's one of my favorite things to make and one of my favorite hash to smoke. So it's not always about yield, you know. But now we've been breeding, you know, of course, for the ones that have that terpene quality that still yield well. Yeah, we bred a lot of stuff with the white. Chrome's the white back in the day, and that was one of our, our heavy, heavy bangers. Do you know what the genetics on the white were? Chrome can speak more about it. I, I know he's told me this story, but 
I think it, it came in that same era as the Florida OG and all that. It was just a different one and it was grown in a different environment. A lot of these strains just due to environment, you know, changed how they in very, you know, after long periods of time in this in different environments, they will be almost adapt. Yeah, they'll adapt to, to the environments. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, let's bring that back actually to essential extracts. You know, you saw a lot of cultivators, you saw a lot of cultivation sites. I'm curious if you could talk about some of the things that you saw, you know, good and bad. You know, things that I saw or things that I was looking for? Things that you saw, maybe like practices that the cultivators were doing that. So like, okay, example, okay, one okay. of the things that I never forget from that time that we met in two years ago in 2017 is you mentioned something to me about being able to smell chemicals mm-hmm. in the water after doing a wash from certain cultivators and knowing that you weren't able to use that material. Yeah. So, you know, I guess starting from the beginning, we started preaching after seeing, you know, and smelling certain things. I remember smelling, you know, very specific essential oils and like almost pinpointing the brand of pesticide that people are spraying too late in flower. And so that was that was a big one. We really started preaching to not spraying at all after, you know, week 3 in flower, even if it's beneficial stuff. We don't want to promote spraying after week 3 in flower. Once trichome development starts, I don't want anything on them. So that's a big thing that we've been preaching. You know, we've been preaching flushing forever you know one of the smells that i really really can't stand is urea and urea is plant excrement so you know plant piss basically if you're not flushing your plants properly you're going to get a lot more of that chlorophyll urea smell to your flowers and transferring into your hash so that's that's a big one that we really promote is flushing properly i'm not going to say organic over synthetic because I've seen amazing results from both. I've seen amazing results from living soil. It's a lot about how you treat the plants, how you treat the trichomes after harvest, how you treat them during harvest, you know, what nutrients you're using and how often you're using them. So many variables to that, to that factor. So, you know, I've seen some people and I'm very uneducated in this and maybe this isn't something that you can answer, but I've heard some people say that, you know, flushing is something that people believe in, but maybe isn't necessarily. It depends. Like if you're in living soil, there's not really such thing as a flush. You're kind of always flushing, you know, it depends on your medium. But if you're using heavy salts and a lot of like sugar stuff at the end, molasses and all these boosting agents and stuff, and you're not flushing those out, yeah, no, I mean, I, I taste it in the flour, I taste it in the hash. And one of the things that I actually like to talk about about the flush is oftentimes if you're pumping with sugar, you know, and I say sugar, but like any of these nutrients that have like, you know, that, you know, that sugar base to it, or even pumping with salts, you're going to create a thicker waxy layer to your trichome head, which may look amazing on the flowers. But when we go to extract it, there's a lot less oil inside that trichome. And the flush, oftentimes, if you're using a lot of these synthetics and uh, heavy sugars and stuff, the flush actually helps get those waxes out, helps 
create a more bulbous trichome, pushes the oils out, makes a thinner waxy cuticle. And it's one of the things that I've noticed over time. So that's one of the, you know, one of the reasons that I promote a flush. A lot of this has to do with genetics as well. Some genetics just have a thicker waxy cuticle and there's nothing you can do about it. So it's interesting what you just said about the flushing correlation to the cuticle and the waxiness or lack of wax. I think it has to do with the conversion. You know, the sugars converting to oils. Almost like a fruit, essentially. It's why we're feeding sugars to produce. Yeah. And the science part of it, I'm not as knowledgeable. I really just have the background and experience. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I think that's what all hash makers at this point have, you know. And I love to learn more about the actual science of growing, of cultivation. I'm not even an experienced, and that's not even just science. That's cultivation. I'm not an experienced cultivator. I grow and I've grown for a few years, but I've grown in specific mediums with some guidance, you know, and I don't consider myself a master grower by any means. I've been blessed to win a cup with some of my own flower that I grew. And it's with a lot of help over the years, you know, with amazing genetics that came from great friends that, you know, I probably shouldn't have even had. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and a lot of teachings along the way. So do you think the cuticle starts out being thicker and then... The oils, yeah, the oil. push The oils almost push through and get to a point where it's almost like a balloon where it's about to pop. Yeah, thicker and smaller, yeah. If you push a strain to its perfect potential, you know, especially if it's a genetic that's meant for it, yeah, you're just going to create a very, very thin cuticle. And that's when you see those strains that just look like oil and they stay stable because there's no waxes. And when you rosin those strains, you're seeing 90 to 98% yields because there's no waxes to pull. Some of those times you're like, is there a blowout? It's just all coming through, you know? Right. <laughs> it's just all oil. Yeah. But you know, again, you brought up something that I've talked a lot about with different hash makers is genetics, right? And so are there going to be some genetics that essentially no matter what you do, what environment you put it in, the cuticle is going to be waxier? 100%. 100%. There's a, a pheno a blue dream. And there are phenos that do the opposite. But there's a pheno blue dream that we ran for a long time in Colorado and California. And it just has a very thick waxy cuticle, a very small head, and a long, narrow stalk. You scope it, you know, we've ran it for years and it just doesn't yield in water hash oils are heavier than waxes okay denser than waxes so when we're talking about a real waxy cuticle you're talking about lack of terpenes you're talking about lack of weight so your yield's going to really suffer i mean that blue dream cut on dry material we're lucky to yield five percent when we're talking fresh frozen we're lucky to yield one to you know one to one percent or whatever on it which is just not viable in this day and age you know where the price of materials gone up all the regulations and all the requirements testing requirements packaging requirements it's just not viable to process a strain that's going to yield one percent right do you think there's a difference between the yield and the waxiness of the cuticle or do or is there some correlation there? Yes, there's a correlation. As I mentioned, you know, if it's got a thick waxy cuticle, wax is lighter than oil. So your yield is going to suffer. So yeah, direct correlation. If it's got a lot of waxes, the yield will suffer. Is there some points where, okay, let's say you, you get this beautiful bulbous trichome full of oil uh -huh. and some of them 
are quote unquote don't wash well or don't release the trichomes in water, right? Oftentimes so, you can have very oily trichomes that just you're losing them to the water. It basically they're bursting into the water. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've seen that. A lot of OGs have that issue where, you know, and that's why we're not seeing big yields. The water has a lot of oil in it. And, you know, one of the things I found interesting while you were doing essential extracts, and I don't remember where I know this from, but is that you guys almost kept like a data, like log, right? Of all these streams that you were working with. Once we were able to start writing things down and be protected for it, we took full advantage. So we have yield data. And even once we started doing fresh frozen, we have exact water weight for all of the material we ran before processing so we could achieve an exact yield at the end. So we took the fresh frozen material, we would take a gram out of it, we would weigh that, whether it was like 0.9 or 1.2, it didn't really matter. We would just weigh that, we'd write, notate that, we'd dry it on parchment paper. Later on, we would put it in the freeze dryer when those came out. But we dry it for 24, 48 hours till it's completely dry, put it back on the scale, and that was what, you know, the water weight we were able to attribute the ratio of of water in it. And so we were able to give a real yield to our growers rather than, you know, a fresh frozen yield or yeah, a wet yield, right, if you will. How did people first feel about letting you work with their material? Well, in the beginning it was a big fight to get material because the BHO guys were taking everything. You know, so we really had to prove ourselves. And that's really where, you know, all this marketing and stuff came from, you know, I had to to really push that we were the the top to even be able to get the material. And it's one of the things that I've promoted since the, you know, day one. Everyone's like, where do you get the material is, you know, you just got to keep pushing it. And you have to be really, really honest with your clients. You know, sometimes water hash isn't going to make them as much money as the hydrocarbon, depending on the strains and depending on your market and stuff like that. You know, and we've been honest with our cultivators since day one. And I think that's part of the reason and the communication, talking about all the yields, keeping all that yield data for the cultivator so that they know and so that we can get better yields each and every time or not run that strain makes the cultivators want to work with us a lot more. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, so I know you talked about giving some cultivators some genetics to work with. Were there some genetics that you were just taking in? from certain cultivators that were working anyways, yield-wise at least? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, some of, uh, yeah, perfect example is uh, the 14er. Big up Evan over at the 14er. They've curated a lot of their own genetics and, and bred a lot of their own genetics. And we had some runs with them where we were yielding over 30% on their dry material. They were giving us dry trim from some of their own cultivars and we were yielding over 30%. Wow. So yeah, I'm familiar with Boulder, right? Yep, yep, in Boulder, Colorado. They were, yeah, we still talk and they're amazing, amazing cultivators and do amazing work with some of their own stuff. So yeah. yeah, I remember them in particular because I'm kind of like a sativa fan and, you know, it's funny enough on the history of rosin, you talked about that and I'll probably ask you about it, but you know, they run something that's real interesting. And I think you've actually talked about it before somewhere, maybe on a live, but uh, the truth. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The truth. I love that strain. Yeah. It's a nice strain. And um, 
they, I, I don't remember if it was maybe sift rosin that they were making at the time or something, but it was just cool to find it like in a solventless form and something that I kind of like in that sense. But yeah, that's cool. So outside of like taking in material, were you always working towards this goal of like having your own? I still am. Okay. Because you and I, before we started talking, you know, on the interview, we talked a little bit about essential extracts and I'll say the same, same thing I said then, you know, that from afar, it seemed like you guys were doing really well. And as you mentioned, you were up to what, 200? Yeah, 200 plus shops in Colorado. And then suddenly you weren't there anymore. And that seemed surprising to me. Yeah. And it was surprising to me too. I, Colorado is my home. I still own a home out in Colorado. And so we'll bring it back. Like, I think it was about three years ago now in Colorado and we were operating and big money started coming in heavy. You know, the regulations came in and yeah, big money was coming in and it was really hard for us small guys to survive. You know, packaging requirements became more difficult, raising tax. I mean, it was, it was just everything, you know? So we had a decision to make. We could either keep sinking or we could finally, I could finally bring on a partner. I started Essential Extracts in 2009 by myself. And for the first 18 months or so, I was working, you know, 12, 14 hour days in the lab myself, doing everything myself. And then eventually I brought on some employees and I actually have to big up one of my employees and my manager, Evan. He worked for me for eight years, seven, eight years. And in a new industry like that, it's pretty amazing, you know? So eventually I brought on Evan and Craig and Sam and, you know, continued to build the essential soldier crew. But for a while I did it all by myself. And then I had an amazing team that backed up, you know, that, that handled stuff that was amazing. Sam even, you know, brought on new technology to the industry, you know, things that I hadn't even thought of. So big up Sam. But at that point, I needed, uh, I needed some more power, some more financial power behind me, a bigger facility. I wanted my own cultivation, you know, and that's really where that started. We had been operating and we were working with seven to 20 different cultivators and it's not consistent, you know, and as times change and consistency has changed, prices go up in fresh frozen, it becomes harder and harder and you need your own cultivation. You, I needed my own cultivation to be able to say, okay, I'm going to run these five strains that I know yield this percentage, but also have these specific terpene profiles and potencies that people like and that I like, you know, and that was difficult to do when you're working with cultivators that are not in-house. Right. So I partnered with a gentleman who had a cultivation and a retail and everything was working out. And unfortunately, things just didn't fall into place like they were supposed to. And it created a really tough issue because we rolled up big like we were joining into a big partnership and built out something large to be able to take 200, you know, handle 200 dispensaries. And all of a sudden, partnerships started splitting. There was promises of money coming in. No money started coming in. I started funding everything myself. But having this, you know, already built this thing to to create, you know, to control the state, 
having to fund it myself became difficult and I had to stop. And it was the hardest decision of my life, but I had to put my foot down. I was patient for two years, waiting for my own cultivation, waiting for my larger lab, waiting for these things that never came to fulfillment. And after two years of putting everything I owned into this, you know, like getting scared about the mortgage on my house, you know, I had to stop the things. And as I was mentioning, I'm blessed with this opportunity to come out to California. During this time, there was a lot of extremely focused time, a lot of work going into this project, working on the design. So, you know, from making hash in a hot barn, you know, after all these years of regulation and learning, you know, the back end and writing down these SOPs, learning what the word SOP means standard operating procedure. I didn't know what that meant for the longest time, you know? So a lot of these things are coming into play. And so I had the experience in California to not only help with, you know, the equipment and the operating procedures, but now I'd been learning actual design and the actual build out. So I've been working with architects and using this app called SketchUp, and which converts into CAD and able to actually help the flow and the allocations and the design of these buildings along with teaching people to make hash. So I came to Cali with a lot in my back pocket from, you know, regulatory standpoint to the actual work itself of making hash. And now the design of these facilities and how I felt like a hash lab should work. You know, I was scrolling through my feed the other day and I came across Low Temp Plate's newest post, which you can follow them on Instagram at lowtemp.plates. That's L-O-W-T-E-M-P dot plates. And I saw a question in their comments section asking, do you ship internationally? And the answer is yes. And what makes that even better is that Low Temp Plates specializes in designing equipment with modularity in mind. That means that it allows you to pick and choose your pressure source based on your needs, including the size of your space and your budget. This also will allow you to grow and scale your system as your needs grow by having the ability to link multiple presses together. Modularity also means that their products are easy to service. So this goes for both national and international customers. Instead of needing to ship an entire press, you can just have the specific component replaced or serviced. All of their equipment is made in the USA, providing a higher quality, consistent product. It's all backed up with their lifetime warranty. And again, they're providing our listeners a 5% discount on their entire order by using the savings code THI. That's the letters THI standing for the Hashish Inn with no spaces. Not only do you support us by doing this, you save some money and you support a company that supports us. Now back to the episode. So that's solventless and hydrocarbon. Because at this point, as I was mentioning with things like Blue Dream that yield 1%, in non-solvent or solventless, it's yielding 20% with butane, you know? So there's places for everything at this point. Back in the day, I wasn't about the butane because I didn't have the knowledge, as I was explaining to you. Now there's so much more knowledge. We can get to zero PPMs of any residual solvents. There's so many testing that's happening that I feel a lot better about utilizing hydrocarbons for certain allocations. It's still not what I smoke, to be completely honest. But For certain aspects of the industry, I think that it is viable 
especially when in Colorado, I was going through hundreds of thousands of pounds that lost me so much money when I could have, instead of just lost the money on it or had to resell that material or something like that, I could just send it to the other side of my lab, you know, not under essential extracts. <laughs> it's another brand, but so even here in California, if you move it to your hydrocarbon department, it doesn't come out as essential extracts. Right now it's, it's still in build out, but okay. that's not the plan that and none of the hydrocarbon would be under the brand name essential extracts. Okay. Essential extracts is a, a solventless company. Right. And so you brought this word up, allocations, which is a term that you used a few times in the history of rosin. Yeah, it's big for me right now because with how many genetics people are growing and how they wash, you can't physically or viably run certain genetics in water hash. Right. You really have to allocate them properly. Some genetics are great for water hash. Some genetics are, you know, have an amazing, you know, terpene content. And it's great for creating terpenes, you know. Some genetics are crazy high in THC, but they have no flavor. And you want to make isolates or, you know, THCA from them, you know. So allocations are huge to me right now. And I think that's the future of the industry as far as making a business viable. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's one of the things that's limiting, I think, for now, when it comes to solventless and or you know water hash specifically and it might always be i don't know you know with the genetics changing and whatnot but is that it really limits the material that you're able to work unless you're finding very specific we're breeding for it now and that's the future is taking things like you know back in the day lemon g was one of my favorite flowers to smoke. It had the craziest lemon rind taste, but literally in hash, it would yield nothing. There was right. no trichomes. It yields nothing, <laughs> like less than 1%, less than 0.05%, I feel like sometimes. It was like disheartening <laughs> to watch all that go down the drain. I'm sure. Um, but now there's been, you know, breeding specifically in the United States, I feel like a lot of it started with lemon tree. Actually, before that, it was like the Oregon lemons and all these lemon strains that generally still to this day are not good for making water hash. But us connoisseurs want that flavor. Or you might want another flavor that doesn't do well in making water hash. And we've been breeding for those terpenes that do well in making water hash. Big up Purple City Genetics because they've been really, really focused on that. La Colada in Spain has been really focused on finding, you know, yielders from strains that don't generally yield. I think, I mean, in Seattle, one of my friends back in the day, Tangy, you know, nobody could find a Tangy strain that yield. And one of my friends in Seattle found the first cut, you know, the first phenotype of Tangy that yielded in water hash. And so not even... Not even all of it is breeding for it, but it's finding those phenotypes. They're in there. And so, you know, if, if you want a specific flavor or even effect, you know, that's, that's being bred for now. And the yield is being bred for for us water hash makers and us consumers. Yeah, no, I, I think it's true. And I mean, I think over time, that'll, like you said, it'll continue. And, you know, for example, with the flavors, it's like, the lemons don't do well in water hash. Well, now they're starting to little by little. And then the oranges didn't do well, like the tangy. Yeah, and big up well. Oni Seeds for producing 
water hashings. Big up Mike, Exotic Genetics. You know, he was one of the guys that started really producing hash strains. Cuban, you know, and Mike just crushed that duo with with him producing amazing hash strains and Cuban running them. You know, uh, it's uh, it's been cool to see. It's been cool to see. And, you know, right now I'm working on a project with a good friend and we're, you know, working on some breeding to find a specific pheno of you know, lemon that really, really hits the yield charts because there's some that are now finally viable, but I still haven't seen one that like hits like, I don't know, my Chem D, you know, hits. And it's not a a normal Chem D. It's an interesting pheno as well, but uh, it hits over 30% yield every single time. And this is obviously, again, you're talking about that dry weight conversion. Yeah. Or even if if we're running dry weight. Yeah. And if we're talking about fresh frozen weight, I'm talking eight to nine percent at least. Yeah, that's a lot because I've I've heard six is six to seven is pretty considered even now a lot. Yeah. So eight or nine is is a lot. We're even seeing 10 percent yielders now. 10 percent. Wow. So, uh, you know, that brings up an interesting point, something that I brought up earlier that I heard you talk about on the history of rosin, which, you know, by the way, shout out to the Future Cannabis Project for putting those on. You know, I think they're pretty cool. But it's this idea of sativas, right? So you talked about sativas on there. And you talked about how a lot of that is not viably commercial, Let's preface this, though. Okay. The difference between sativa and indica is kind of bullshit these days. Yes. Well, you know, that's so we're just that. kind of generalizing to begin with. Right. And, you know, we talk about sativas and sour diesel is one of, you know, the most well-known sativas and it washes amazingly, you know? So, you know, it, it's a big generalization. So let's talk about that, you know, because I, I agree with you. I mean, you know, the more that I've learned about cannabis— and like resin in particular, it's like, well, at the level of the resin, it's not about the plant structure. It's not about any of that. Yeah. It's just resin. Yeah. So whatever's in the resin, that's what's like making this difference in how people feel, how it smells, how it interacts with your endocannabinoid system. Right. So I mean, what are sativas to you? Because when I think sativa, it's like this tropical. It's just all generalization now because I don't think we should utilize the term indica and sativa. Broadleaf, thin leaf? Yeah. Thin leaf? Yeah, but even talking about broadleaf and thin leaf, you're going to have different characteristics. You know, I feel like the terpenes are really the modulators. Right. The terpenes is is what is going to give you the effect. Right. Whether it's an indica or sativa, the terpenes modulating with the cannabinoids is what's giving you different effects. Yeah, and I agree with you. And I think there may be like a few other things, maybe like the flavonoids and stuff that, but yes, I think the terpenes are the major players in how your body essentially is able to process the cannabinoids. And so, you know, again, going back to like this idea of generalizing and saying, well, you know, sativas, like usually when I think of a sativa, I think of like, almost like a tropical smell or like almost like a, a pineapple or a mango or so it's interesting that you bring up the sour diesel and the sour diesel because the sour diesel is not really necessarily like that but the effects are can be sativa like depending on the cut I suppose so do you I guess it leads me to asking like do you think that there's going to be hash strains 
that not only are developed for like the smell, which again, that's interesting because the terpenes play into the smell, obviously, or they are the yeah. smell, right? So are there going to be hash strains that are going to be developed based on more like the effect? So are, that you get more of a, for example, sativa Well, I, I think the future is developing specific cannabinoid ratios with terpenes to target certain needs, you know, and it's really hard to speak about it because, you know, there's not enough research first off. And second off, you know, there's so many, you know, regulations on cannabis, you know, and saying you can't say that cannabis does this for this. And that all stems back to we don't have the research. We don't have that in place yet. But I think the future 100% is developing ratios of cannabinoids, terpenes, and flavonoids, and, you know, ratios, basically, of the concentrate to help or aid in certain ailments so would, or needs at that or point, desires. At that point, would strains be almost, like, are you talking about basically taking any plant and almost, like, breaking it down, almost like, a, what are those machines called, the chromatography machines? where they're breaking down every single element, isolating them, and then you're being able to like reintroduce them? Or are you talking more about like on a genetic level where you target a plant to grow a certain profile, for example? I mean, both. And I think both are happening. And I think it's going to take both. You're going to have to breed specifically to achieve, you know, these specific separations that you're desiring. You know, every plant's going to have different components. Cool. Changing the pace a little, you know, what was the first time that you heard of, of water hash? Because like I told you earlier, I talked to Mila not long ago and she mentioned that she thought that it was actually a concept that was brought over from the United States into Europe. At what point did you hear what about... What, what year did she say? She didn't. And she actually, I, if I remember correctly, was going to name a name, but she didn't remember at the time. But it must have been after like 89, because I think that's when she moved back to Amsterdam. I mean, there's a lot of, and it's been years since I've even gone over this history and not even, you know, sure on all the names. But as far as I recall, it was a gentleman named Reinhard Delp that had a seminar where a lot of these people were watching. And then they all kind of developed their own bag systems from there but i feel like water hash came well before that well before the bag system right. you know just the situation agitation. yeah the agitation in water but i can't speak on that man that's before my time and you know i yeah no i was just curious what you those. knew if you knew anything yeah about no it. no no i just know about the uh the instruments a little bit i don't know about them i you know just have read and have heard stories from just a few of the parties. I haven't heard the stories from all of the parties that were at that event. Right. Where uh, they discussed this screening methodology. Yeah, no, it's interesting always to me because before the inclusion of water, I mean, dry sifting had been the way to make hash. 100%. For a long time outside of charas, right? Yep. And so it, that, it was a big, it's like a big deal. Yeah, uh, and I and I feel like even if it happened, let's say, 
30 or 40 years ago. It's still very relatively new in cannabis. So I, I don't know, man. I feel like it was happening well before that. But that's a great been. question, man. Yeah, that's no, a I, great don't, question. I don't know. I haven't either. really thought about that in a minute. <laughs> no, I no, used no. to nerd out on it back on <laughs> back in the day, you know? But uh yeah. So I know you got like a lot of stuff going on now and like you were mentioning, you're learning new things like building or like making plans for buildings and build outs and but let's talk about a little bit about kind of like the craft of hash making and when you were working alone for you know whether you were doing it before essential extracts or during essential extracts let's start by if you got a new strain how are you going to work that material like can you break that down yeah if i had a new strain i utilize all of all the variables that I know. So we're going to run as many bags as I have. You know, we're not just going to run, you know, five set of bags. I'm going to run them all for that new strength. I want to see where the trichomes drop. And by all, do you mean like, for example, if you had like a set of eight, you'd run all eight bags? All all eight bags for that first run. I want to see like exactly what size of trichome they are. Well, I guess to back it up even further, if I have a new strain that comes in that I don't pick, is that what you're saying? That like, or yeah, no, I mean, that's where I was going. With basically, how you were saying, you know, you take you take a new strain and you break it down to see kind of where the microns are landing and whatnot. But even then, I'm sure there's probably variations, right? But to back it up, yeah. we we scope the material. We release, you know, we scope the material. We look at it thoroughly. We make sure that there's no mold or any visible signs, no bugs, right. And then we scope it and we want to make sure that it's going to even be viable, that the heads look right, that there's enough volume of heads. You know, oftentimes I'll scope material and all I see is stocks. Like it was just mishandled or somebody already sifted it or, (laughs) you know, or it didn't produce. You know, it was day 40 and they chopped it. You know, there's so many variables to it not having a head, but decapitated. You know, we see stuff like that and we won't run it. Well, yeah, there's nothing to run, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I guess it starts there, you know? Okay. And, uh, I mean, before that, if I, you know, it starts with the grower, the breeder, before that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But when we get it and it looks to be, you know, like a viable strain, we bring it in. We use all the bags. We drop my temperatures as low as possible in the walk-in. We drop temperatures as low as possible in the ice water mixture. We just don't know what it's going to do. After we've... Seen how it drops in all the bags, that's when we'll start, you know, say it didn't drop anything in the upper bags. We'll start removing some of those upper bags because we don't need all that filtration, you know, and that's just a lot more time allotted to your process. So by upper, you mean like 180 to 150? Yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, I've I've had strains yield in 220. you know? Right. And we've had to go higher in bags and get custom bags made by Mila. <laughs> Way back in the day, we had this lemon Kush strain, and it like yielded two ounces of hash in the two twenty. We're like, and it was weird. It was melt. Uh, yeah, still confuses me. Still confuses me. Yeah. still confuses me to this day. So the bags are, you know, one of the first variables we utilize them all to start. We're running full cycle on the freeze dryer. You know, your preferred agitation is via machine or hand or on. Yeah, that's a great question. On new material, generally we do a hand wash first. 
Right now, um, and that's, you know, it's a great question because right now I've been working on an agitator for, fuck, I've been working on one for like eight years. We have seven different prototypes. Actually, in fact, one of the guys uh, that I have a prototype with is in Vegas right now that we worked together five, six, six years ago or something. And uh, so I've worked on prototypes for years and we're finally launching an agitator in the very, very near future here that I've been working on for a long time. Cool. And so that's why the question's interesting to me because I'm hoping that my agitator is going to be, you know, the end all. Yeah, we actually, our second attempt was in Miami kind of during the Dabidu time. And I know you were down there and you were kind of looking into that. So, you know, that's exciting because although there's like some technology that seems to be coming, I haven't seen anything out outside of like these giant, very expensive, you know, systems. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, our goal and, you know, I've been, like I said, I've been working on this for a long time and our goal has been to make something for everybody. I want something for the European market. I want something for the homemaker. I want something for the small batch commercial maker. I want something for the hemp producer. Large, large-scale hemp producer. So we are working on all of those. Cool. All of them. So the agitation by hand, the bag. Let's talk about a little bit. You know, you mentioned the environment. So earlier you said you want to work slow when waiting for your water and ice, for example, to be at the perfect temperature. What is the perfect temperature? Is there a perfect temperature for you? You know, it, it depends on the strain, but we really, really like to be as close to freezing as possible. So 32, 33 degrees. I don't like it to go above 33 degrees. And you were actually saying you were using like a laser gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We use a temp. Yeah, temp, temp, yeah, yeah. temp gauge. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then your something we haven't talked about outside of like the earlier experience is like the drying. So at what point did you start like sieving the material? Yeah, yeah. This is great. So... <clears throat> Mila taught me the sieve day one, 2001 or whatever. I didn't really start utilizing that till later on. And then uh, me and Matt Rise got together. And we actually, I feel like we did one of the very first collaborations of our space, of our solventless space, if you will. Matt Rise had a term called ice wax, and I had a term called solventless wax. And we still, you know, promote both of these terms. And it's, you know, where a lot of this started. And it started because we were distinguishing what we were doing and controlling these variables from that black, mildewy smelling bubble hash that everyone knew as water hash for years. So, you know, Big up Matt Rise. He created this term, ice wax. And really, it's after I coined the term solventless wax, I was like, bro, you know, you've got to have your own, own term for it. So ice wax came about. We did this collaboration together and we actually brought it to one of the first California High Times Cannabis Cups. We didn't enter. We just posted up at a table and just gave people dabs and showed people what we did, you know, and it was a little collaboration of his microplane tech and my sieve tech. And, you know, later on in in the commercial environment, we adapted that microplane tech before the freeze dryers came into play. So I do have to give it up to Matt for the microplane tech for real. The sieve tech came from Mila. And uh, we refined it a lot, you know, and there's still advantages. People love that 
look and that color and consistency. There's still some advantages to it, but at this point, we've moved to really what we had to move to. We had a choice in Colorado and you know, the health department was coming in and doing checkups and asking us things like, how do you mitigate the chance for mold microbial? And, you know, there wasn't anything in our SOPs at that time to mitigate the chance for mold microbial. We started looking into UV lighting and, you know, we ended up putting UV lighting and all the lights and, you know, stuff in our dry rooms as well. But that's when freeze dryers came into play. And I think we were one of the first companies to actually have commercial, you know, freeze dryers in Colorado. We had, you know, our commercial company to have freeze dryers. There were a few homemakers. I was not the first person to use one for making hash. And I don't remember exactly who it was, but I wasn't ready to like go all in and invest in it. And, you know, once I saw it work, I went all in. We bought eight of them for our lab in Colorado. And by seeing it work, what do you mean? I mean, obviously it means that you saw some hash that came from a freeze dryer that looked good, but what what did that look like? Did it look any like different? Yes, it definitely looked different. It looked like the heads were smaller than my sieved or than Matt's microplane, even though the heads are all the same size. It just appeared that way. It was a lot lighter in color, but we started seeing differences too. You know, like I started noticing different, you know, strains or different operators on these freeze dryers do different things. And I was like, all right, I got to play. You know, and so we just dove in head first right. and started playing with the freeze dryers in Colorado. There was there was another company, I think Olio was one of the first companies also using freeze dryers. It was like all at the same time we just went in. And I think Ken, Ken Wall, there was a bunch of us that like pretty much same time we were watching, you know, the homemakers do a few things. And I just think that we were the first to really put it out on the shelf commercially. And kept pushing it. But the reason for it is because health department came in and wanted, you know, for us to show, you know, something in our SOPs for mitigating the chance for mold and microbial, especially after people got caught up with nasty washing machines and using home washing machines and finding mold and mildew and stuff like that. And it, it was a concern. And water and plant material creates, you know, growth. So, it's always been a concern. And when the freeze dryers came into play, that was the answer. We put that into the SOPs and we felt like that was really our way to help mitigate the chance for mold and microbial, especially because we're testing before all the product comes into our facility and we're testing everything after or, you know, before it leaves our facility. But um, without, if you're making a clean separation, you don't have any plant material in the hash and you've removed 100% of the moisture, you have no chance for growth, no chance for mold microbial. And so that was key. I also saw stability. Without water, you see a lot more stability. Without excess water, you see a lot more terpene retention as well. So, so you do you believe that some, by using a freeze dryer, the hash maintains a higher terpene content? Yeah. Do you have a preference as to like what you like to smoke? Uh, you know, if you had your choice, air dried, microplane sieved at this point the freeze dryer, freeze dryer. Yeah, yeah 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 the way that we're able to control the freeze dryers yeah do you think that it's the perfect solution to drying hash or is there something that can still be improved upon well the ones that are available right now in our range and size can definitely be improved upon 
for sure. And I'm not going to say anything is the end all be all. And that's just my personal preference right now. You know, back in the day, it was deceived for years. It's all I wanted, you know, in my spliffs, you know, it's, yeah, a lot of it's personal preference at this point, but there's always a future for something new. Yeah, it's true. I agree. It's just, I was making cash in a barn and now we're separating 99.9% THCA mechanically without the use of any chemical solvents or, you know. Yeah, it's come a long way. Yeah. It's come a long way and it, it hasn't been long. And we're growing THCA now. Just, you know, we and it all started, I feel like, where I saw earwax, butane earwax, and I was like, I want to mimic that. So I coined solventless wax. And we started making things that looked like the earwax. We started seeing the the hydrocarbon guys, you know, and big up all the guys that are pushing that envelope, for real. Because we started seeing them, you know, grow crystals, grow THCA crystals. Right. And we're like, wait, terpenes are doing that for you? Right. Oh, we can do this. Yeah. We can do terpenes and pressure? Yeah, we can do this. Yeah, Sam, you know. Or solvent and pressure, yeah. AKA turbines. From Mile High, when I talked about that, you know, and just how, like, a lot of that came from chasing the hydrocarbon. 100%. Look. And that's where it started, literally with earwax. Right. Yeah, it's funny. We talked about the term solventless. I love Sam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a cool dude. I, um, did I mention that, that yeah, he, he worked for us. We, we brought Sam out of Wyoming. And he worked for us for a long time. He, he became, you know, the lead extractor in our facility. And more than the lead extractor in our facility, he started developing tech. And it was pretty amazing to see, for real. Yeah, that's cool. It's cool to see, like, as a friend and as a boss, you know, or, you know, at that time. So, but yeah, he's definitely an innovator. Yeah, man. And, and that's cool. So he talked a lot about how that was kind of a priceless also experience for him looking at that much resin, you know, working five days a week processing. So it sounds like it was a kind of cool time for you guys all for, for learning. You know, you brought up the idea earlier about how you've maybe transitioned a little bit into educator as well, you know, and obviously I see that you're very active doing whether there's like maybe not the demo so much anymore, but you used to do a lot of still, I, yeah, I just did a demo, and I actually just uh, booked a demonstration for uh, Spanibus Week in Spain. Yeah, actually, I, and I did a demo in Canada this year. It's on YouTube right now. Cool. Yeah, no, actually, I, I think I still get in like five, ten demos a year. Okay, yeah, well, that's quite a bit. I just remember um, from the essential days, you know, you were everywhere. Yeah, 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 that. no. Um, but you still do a lot of speaking. And, and-, and that's what I was going to get into as well is like this facility in the Bay Area is taking a little bit longer than expected, but it's given me this crazy opportunity. I've had the last six months to really travel the world and like full on not really touch ground too much and help other brands launch, do collaborations with brands, teach in Spain, teach in Canada, speak and host throughout the world. It's it's really, uh, you know, been cool and eye-opening and I've learned a ton, you know, like out in Spain, I did a collaboration with La Sagrada Farm and they're, they're doing some cool things out there, you know, and Spain is really pushing the envelope. La Sagrada, La Calada, HQ Lab, they're really uh, pushing the envelope out there. They're able to select phenos even on a larger scale than us in the U.S. because they're selecting phenos in Morocco and other things of that nature, you know, on, a, on bigger scales. And su- southern Spain does 
big, big Fino selections. Really? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, you know, we're doing them out here, you know, of course, of course, we're doing big ones out here as well. But they, you know, Europe has been known for hash <laughs> for a long time. And, you know, so I got to big up all my European friends for pushing the envelope now more than ever, you know. It's yeah, cool. I mean, I've seen that you've, you've been in Spain. I think you were there for Spanibus last year and then a little time in between now and then and sounds like you're going back now so can you talk a little bit about the scene i mean i know you just did but like can you get a little more into detail as to kind of what's going on because like you said they have a very storied history with hash and hash consumption maybe not as much hash making i don't know well what's happening in in spain right now is they you know long ago they passed a, a really really tight like social club like uh law or private club law, basically, that, you know, protects the private clubs really, really well in Spain. But there's not a lot of regulation aside from that. And, you know, can't really speak too much more about that. But the environment is amazing in Spain. It is what the ideal situation is. We don't have that you know, it's starting to happen here in the U.S. Really just recently, you know, with uh, Dougie and with Lowell, now OG. I don't know what they're calling themselves right now. But there's been a few things that are starting to appeal to that. But but Spain's really pushed the envelope with allowing you to be donated cannabis in a facility where you can consume it, where you can drink a alcoholic beverage or a natural juice. Right. And eat amazing food all in one place. Listen to a live DJ all in one place. Like, that's the vibe, you know? And the big problem that's been happening is people are allowed to now purchase cannabis in the United States, you know, in specific states, of course. But where can they legally smoke it other than their own house? And then they've, they live in an apartment that doesn't allow, you know, cannabis, you know, or whatever it may be. There's, there's all these variables. Where do they go? They go in the street, they smoke, and they get in trouble? That's not right. You know? Yeah, so, it's weird. So there's a lot of weird stuff happening there. And Spain really exemplifies what I feel like is a beautiful environment to consume. You know, Brethren Terps Army, HQ, The Plug, La Colada, Alma Social Club. There's a few that, that really shine for me. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, and uh, G13. I, I don't know. There's so many more. I forget now. Cause specifically, Dank Grass. Dank Grass puts me on. <laughs> but this is all specifically in Barcelona that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, just on the outskirts of like central. But yeah, mainly Barcelona. That's yeah. kind of like the most progressive place in the country, would you say? In regards um, to cannabis? Not in regards to the regulatory side, but in regards to freedom only inside that space. The second you walk outside the club, you can instantly get arrested. And it happens. They watch these social clubs. So, like, don't don't get this shit twisted. It's literally only inside. Like, you walk outside in Spain and, like, you know, they're watching you come out of a social club. They'll straight, you know, take you for everything. <laughs> Put you in jail. No, that's, I mean, it's good for people to know. Yeah. No, they will. It's serious. It's dead serious. It's not legal in Spain. Right. It's just that they have a very tight social club law that protects you. 
Yeah. And I mean, you know, for example, I mean, I know you spent time there uh, in Amsterdam. Uh, I've been a few times. It's been some time now, but it was interesting because I mean, like, yeah, it was the same deal. You could smoke in the coffee shops, but you could smoke outside, even though maybe you you'd get a couple looks or something like or it wasn't maybe the best idea in all parts of town. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But you could do it. You know, but in Spain, it yeah, it just sounds like you're confined to that space, and then obviously home or a private yeah area. Yeah, you yeah. Know? so that's interesting. Um, are they? You know, I don't know how much you know about it, but like in regards to the genetics, you know, since they have uh, a broad ability to pick, you know, phenotypes from large scale grows. Have you seen any kind of interesting stuff that you haven't seen in the U.S.? Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of interesting things. Like we don't have the Barbara bud in the U.S. really at all. And Barbara bud is, I think it's a Shishkaberry Fino or Shishkaberry Cross put out by Matt, the great gardener out of Canada. Right. It got brought over and somehow there's, you know, some, uh, a few crews that got different phenos. And one of my favorite phenos of this Barbara bud came from La Sagrada from Premier. And it's crazy papaya tropical. And like other times I've tasted the Barbara bud sift and stuff. It tasted good and fruity and stuff. But and maybe it has something to do with the environment. I don't even really know, to be completely honest. I haven't tracked it too much. Right. But that thing dumps and it tastes amazing. And I think they, it was even the one that they were able to grow THCA in the melt before they even rosined it. So it was that high in THCA, had that thin of a, uh, of a cuticle yeah. where they just got the hash, right? jarred it up, little heat pressure, and were growing THCA. That's crazy. You know, in you know, making a sauce yeah. basically in the hash, and that's why I say, you know, big up Europe. They're being extremely innovative right now. They're pushing the envelope. Yeah, keep up with some of the Barcelona guys and stuff. So I don't know. Watch them. You know, and then there's people in the U.S. that really, really push the envelope of the mechanical separation. The other side of mechanical separation, specifically talking about actually mechanically removing the THCA from the terpenes. And there's some guys that have really, really refined that tech too. It's cool. Sam being one of them, you know, some other guys, Rackham's has been really refining, you know, that tech and a lot of other people out there. Clear, clear THCA. When we were first testing that mechanical separation in the labs in Colorado, we hit 108% THCA. We can't put that on the shelf. It doesn't make sense. I had to call up the lab, and these the lab good friends still just talk to one, the owners and or guys that run one of the labs out there. And we were basically, you know, hitting such high numbers that their standard wasn't calibrated to see those right. high numbers in THCA. So, it. yeah, so things had to be adjusted. Um, and that's mechanical, you know, that's without hydrocarbons. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really interesting what's happening with the resin and like the different directions. <laughs> yeah, no, big up all the fucking people pushing it. Yeah. Pushing it. Yeah, for sure. 
I feel like today I'm just a carrier, you know, like I, I, I put in some work and I'm still learning every day and I'm still learning, you know, and trying to innovate myself, especially on the technology and equipment side of things. But there's some guys that are out there just, you know, really, really grinding and, and pushing the envelope. And I love it because that's what I've promoted since day one. You know, it's limitless. You know, there's a lot we can still do. Yeah, no, it's cool and it's exciting. What do you see for the future of solventless? I there, I think there's a lot of things for the future of solventless, and I've touched on a few of them, but really, really refining the genetics for specific traits. You know, looking for those strains that yield, but also have you know, the crazy head high or the body high and that terpene profile you're looking for. And, you know, the ones that help inflammation for medicinal purposes, we may find ones that help all kinds of things. Who knows, you know, and they say cannabis is killing cancer and it's been shown to kill cancer cells. Right. But what part of it, you know, maybe we're going to be targeting something that may help specific types of cancer. You know, I, I think that there's a lot for our future. And because research has just started, you know, it really gives us hope. Before this, there hasn't been a lot of re- legal research right. able to be done. So no, it's um, true. And there's a lot of universities jumping on board, which is amazing. I've been reached out to by a number of universities and helped with some R&D projects over the years. With CSU in Colorado and CU Boulder and it's been really cool to see that things are changing. Yeah, it is. As I tend to say, I know we've been hanging out for a while. Uh, I just start kind of winding it down, but ask you things kind of all over the place. So, you know, one one of the things that you brought up to me while we were in Miami that kind of piqued my interest was you said that when you started Essential Extracts in Colorado, there was different industries that reached out to you in regards to the technology sector. Yes. What were some of those industries and what were the things that they were, you know, contacting you about? Yeah, one of them particularly just emailed me this morning. Like, it's really, really crazy. I don't know how this timing works out. But one of them, he really came from the technology side. The company is called Microfluidex. And they were in the head of developing stuff for like the cold brew industry and nano emulsions and things of that nature. I'm sure there were other companies that came before, but that was, you know, one of the ones that I had researched and that reached out to us. Okay. And it taught me a lot. And that's where some of our first prototypes for agitators came from, but it went even deeper into that deeper, you know, talking about nano emulsions, basically. And nano emulsion helps with getting through your blood brain barrier faster when you're talking about topicals, you know, and sublingual formulas getting through, you know, into your system quicker. So I learned a lot personally about, you know, other things other than just the hash making side of things, but creating smaller particulates. Yeah, that's interesting. So the Agitator is an interesting point that you bring up because, like you said, you've been working on a project for a long time or various projects have multiple prototypes. I've seen other companies that like are going to seem like almost kind of launch something as well. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on like the future of hash making in automation. Like how automated can it be? I think bags are going to go away. I hate to say, you know, I own the essential bags. I stopped producing them about three years ago or so. 
And I love, you know, Mila and all these, you know, bag makers that survive off of their bag sales. And, you know, it's really hard for me to talk about, to be completely honest. But, you know, I went out to Nevada and I was working with the facility and they stopped making water hash completely. They got like a notice that they found, you know, microbial in the the bag itself, you know, and it holds a lot, those bags, you know, depending, even, even if you clean them regularly and yada, 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 there's just, uh, there's, it's a variable there. The bag itself is a variable talking about getting into full commercial pharmaceutical production if we're trying to retain the natural quality and stay alive in this industry, it could become a problem, you know, the bag itself. Like I said, I don't want it to be. I like the system. It works for now. But I think that there's uh, more automation coming in that sector. I've been working on a few things myself. Uh, Yeah. So it's interesting because... You say that this company shut their operation down because they found kind of microbial. Just microbial. just their water hash operation. Right. So, like you mentioned earlier, in Denver, you guys were testing before and after. Mm-hmm. Were those tests not testing for that? Or were those coming Mold back and microbial clean? didn't come into play. We weren't even able to test for mold and microbial until 2017. Okay. So just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yep. They didn't offer it to us. Right. So do you think that... Maybe 2016? I don't know. Like I yeah, said, you know, not my long ago a little off, but yeah. Do you think that there is like a certain component to that? Like, no, like you said, no matter how much you clean or rinse fabric, essentially, at over time, it'll build something on it. There's, that moisture. there's that concern. Yeah. There's that concern for sure. In our lab... We switch out the bags. Luckily, I, you know, owned a company and created a bag system. Right. So we had unlimited amount of bags. And that's really why I made the thing. I, I We sold some sets, but we, we made that company originally so we could support our In house. habit. You know, we wanted to support our habit. Originally, my buddy Dave's mom was stitching them for us, you know, and we called them the bags before the essential bags came out. So... And Dave's a famous hydrocarbon maker, so. (laughs) You know, in regards kind of to the automation again, like, how important do you think that the human element to making hash is going to continue being? Like, will there always need to be a person who's familiar with the resin more than just running it through a machine? Yeah, I think that there's always going to be a chef at play. You know, it's the chef theory for me, you know. You can control as much as you want, but the plant's uncontrollable. There's going to be variables from the start. Right. Yeah. So you can you can make a program for the GG4, even from that specific grower and for that specific harvest, you know, but he's got, you know, 2,000 pounds or whatever, and maybe some of it, you know, was in a corner and, you know, didn't get as much light or something, and it's going to run differently. Right. You know, from the top of a plant to the bottom of a plant, the trichomes can be different. Right. Same plant. So it's a plant. (laughs) We're trying to automate as much as we can because that's where we're being pushed. And we're being pushed that way because the margins keep getting tighter and tighter on us. (laughs) And or, you know, the other side is, you know, 
getting more and more threatened. Right. Something we haven't talked about really <laughs> is your music. You know, I see you're also pretty active with DJing as well. And when we again met in the summer of, of 2017, you talked to me a little bit about how you kind of really found like your chops by doing the music first. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a cool, you know, uh, <laughs> it's it's a trip, man. So I started uh, really as a flyer kid, you know, like a street promoter, a guy on the street, hitting cars, getting into clubs. And, you know, certain clubs took some finesse, you know, and I wasn't a DJ at that point. I was just a street promoter. And sometimes you got your name on a guest list for certain clubs, but like to get into certain clubs that like really had the vibe you were trying to get at your party that you were promoting or you were, you know, sometimes we had 15 parties or clubs that we were promoting for at a time. And to really get in the door, you had to finesse your way in. A lot of these clubs didn't allow flyers. So okay. we had to like hide the flyers and shit and like finesse our way into the door and get our get the word out and stuff. And, you know, from there, I started managing, you know, that that company and kind of helping with those allocations and helping some of the other street teamers be like, okay, these flyers should go to these clubs, you know, and I just started to learn the clubs. There was a cool correlation too, because a lot of the security at a lot of the clubs in the Bay Area was the same security at some of the first dispensaries in, in San Francisco as well. Okay. So we started to like make those correlations and I started making hash <laughs> up north and dropping it off at the vapor room. And this was like pre-regulation, you know, and you know, 215 stuff uh where you know you could just make hash at your house and right. and drop it off at a dispensary. Right. And so that was the first dispensary that ever carried my hash. And, you know, and it was, I feel like I had a little bit of an in because the same security at Club Six where I was like flyering and DJing was the same security at the dispensary, you know, but that was a trip. But yeah, I learned a lot from that as a ground and then learning to promote my own parties. I got taught to DJ in the, you know, I guess now, yeah. 2004-ish is when I really started by some some roommates in Colorado. And then I had come back to the Bay Area a little bit and really uh, learned a lot from my Bay Area family and pushing my boundary as a DJ. Yeah, that's cool. So, I mean, it's definitely something that you still enjoy doing. I mean, obviously, like you said, it kind of maybe unfolded from doing the promotions yeah. at first. And so, like... Learning how to market myself then as a DJ, you know, and put, you know, putting myself out there, building social media before this, before that job, even I hated social media. I wasn't on MySpace, you know, I like eventually got on MySpace and had like a little music thing on MySpace. That's what I used it for. But I, I wasn't into it. I was like out trying to skateboard and surf and snowboard and play sports. I wasn't really into it. I was t- yelling at my friend, what are you guys doing all day long? You know, I was that guy. And then starting to do this social, you know, this street marketing, I was like, wait. And, you know, big up Ren Salgado of True School because he's really the guy who did it for me. He was like, yo, you can do this online, bro. You know, because he was the one who employed me, street flyer. And he's like, you should also do it online. I do it online too, you know. Another homie, DC, really helped me push that audience and he was he taught me how to really utilize 
you know, the social media marketing network and who to add as friends even, you know, like add this person, he's going to get you hype, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like this is the onset. And it taught me a lot just organically about how to build a name for myself as a DJ, you know, and I didn't build a big name. I'm I'm still, you know, just, you know, humbly doing it because I fucking love it. But it taught me a lot about how to build a name for myself as a DJ and then very soon after, I kind of took that experience and the social media aspect as well as the street promotion aspect, as well as utilizing my music to promote cannabis and started making cannabis dub plates and having cannabis-oriented mixtapes that I was putting out and just really tried to combine the, the world of my reggae originally, reggae music and cannabis. And then, you know, High Times started booking me to DJ. And I was like, whoa, you know, I've looked up to these dudes for a long time. This is sick. And it broadened my scope of music. You know, I'm playing at the Melkweg for people anywhere from the age of, you know, 18 or something to, or 21. I don't know what the legal age is, <laughs> sorry. Uh, to like 80, you know, like the, and people that liked all kinds of things from the dead to house music, to reggae, to hip hop, to trap and, and, and uh, dubstep back then, you know. And, you know, so I feel like just DJing for a lot of the cannabis community coming from DJing as just a reggae DJ on seven inch record straight out of Jamaica to DJing for the cannabis industry, <coughs> starting with just seven inches, but then really learning with the high times gigs and then DJing for other magazines just to make my music a lot more eclectic. So I feel like I play everything now and still everything does seem to have a reggae influence, <laughs> but I play everything from house to dance hall, hip hop, reggaeton cumbia mumbaton trap yeah just a variety yeah you name it man that's cool man well that's cool i've been really loving that uh and afrobeat and you know i've been loving the afrobeat and latin and yeah trap vibes and reggae vibes all of it all of it bunch of new cool dance all coming out bunch of i've been downloading a lot of music lately actually (laughs) i'm kind of hyped because what my next i was supposed to be dj on a boat a couple weeks ago i was getting hyped for that but it didn't happen (laughs) <laughs> but uh, due to weather, people didn't want to be on a boat in that weather. But outside forces, but yeah, no, I'm I'm getting hyped for a few gigs coming up in Spain. Man, I'm stoned. I feel like I have another gig coming up too. But uh, yeah, always doing the music because it's a passion. The second I touch, and I still use needle and records, um, whether it's Serato or actual vinyl, just the feeling of touching the needle to the vinyl is just heaven. And I like that feeling. And I get on stage and I'm a little different, you know, and I'm a performer and I like to feel that vibe. I like to create the energy at a party and I like to feel the energy at a party. I generally don't create set lists. I just want to feel the energy and create a vibe. Cool. And that's what I like doing. Thanks, man. Well, yeah, that's cool to see how it kind of influenced also into like the social media and the hash, you know? Basically, I learned... (laughs) I learned to, yeah, run a business from street marketing. It's crazy. I don't have a business degree. I never went to school for business. I went to school for psychology, people. Right. That helps. That's an important important skill for sure. So, you know, earlier before, again, we got on air, um, we were talking about something kind of funny and the term solventless came up. And you talked about 
how basically you coined it and then you talked about earlier with the Matt Rise in reference to the ice wax. But something that you said before we got on there was interesting in that you said that at the beginning you seem more like protective of the term. And as time has gone on, you no longer really feel that way about it. Well, so in the very beginning, you know, I was very protective of the term. I was like, we're calling it solventless because I'm trying to separate it from the bubble hash that was out there. You know, people were, you know, confused. They're like, no, that's not bubble hash, you know? And so we really just wanted to separate it. And I had this, like, this feeling that it was, you know, like we needed to protect that. But very, very soon after that feeling, you know, I feel like less than a year because it blew up so fast. It was hard to control at that point. And, you know, at that point, then I was, you know, starting to realize that this was my mission. I wanted to teach people this. I wanted to create a different, higher echelon for this product. I wanted to create more education, you know? And at that time, I didn't really realize what, you know, what it would really do, you know? But a couple of years later, after really, you know, continuing that education, I realized that those people I was educating were educating everyone else and it just was spreading that much faster. And whether it was a, a money thing or a health thing, you know, and just trying to help people, you know, we were pushing solventless on a lot bigger level, you know, you know, so everyone that was involved in this movement was doing better. Right. So it, it and now it's funny because it's been kind of become like this umbrella term. Yeah, and it's and it's so funny walking around events now, like seeing all the all the brands, you know, have solventless on their chest. And now I'm proud of it. Like I was just talking about this, you know, I, I made the first shirt that has solventless on the chest. And like there's like three or four companies right now that their shirt says solventless on the chest or on the front part of the hoodie or something, you know, like I thought I, I think it's pretty epic to be completely honest. I'm proud. <laughs> No, so that's cool. So, I mean, you know, that brings up an interesting point. Like, I want to ask you about judging in a second, but what do you, like, if you had to categorize it, do you find the term solventless or non-solvent? Can non-solvent mean something else? I think non-solvent encompasses solventless, you know? I, it's very, very similar, and we've been having this discussion, and I think that there will be some clarity on that discussion very soon. So now that you judge quite a bit, I see you kind of on the judging circuit here in the States and even abroad. You know, how has that been? Like, is it always an enjoyable experience? I love doing it. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely stressful times during it. You know, I'll get booked to host an event, you know, and then have to help with you know, a lot of the back end, but I, I do enjoy that part too. You know, even the help on the back end, like I want to be that guy in all honesty, because, you know, like you go back to high times and they didn't have a category for non-solvent. And me, Nico, and a bunch of the other high times guys, Dougie from Hitman was in that room. A bunch of us created the non-solvent category and the waiting system, you know, back in the day. And so I feel like I have to keep pushing with that and some of the technology and, and you know, the actual back end 
of this industry, it's setting standards, you know? So I love it all. I love it all. Even, even the stress sometimes, you know, I just like being busy, you know, <laughs> to yeah. be completely honest. Like I was on the road for six months, judging cups, hosting events, DJing, helping brands, consulting, you know, kind of the gambit. And I loved it. I don't know if there's a lot of my friends or people around me that like can keep going like that. When I stop, you know, I, I like to stop for like, I don't know, three or four days. But after that, like two weeks ready to go. of like, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, yeah, I want to do something or be in my lab producing, you know? And that's been the interesting part about right this second in my life. It's the first time where, you know, luckily I'm, I, I continue to get booked really is yeah, what's it's happening it's uh i just keep getting you know opportunities and new projects working on the equipment side of things while i'm not actually in my lab working on consulting side of things doing licensing agreements yeah so it's been fun you know it's been a really really interesting journey the last two years have been the most unstable two years of my life but it's been eye opening it's taught me a lot. Cool. On a different note, again, going back to the history of Rosin, you talked about like the different factors in the priority for you when washing a strain for hash. And if I remember correctly, number one was yield. I wouldn't weight it like that. Okay. But it depends on what you're trying to do. You know? I'm first looking for, for terpene representation. Like, that's my first goal. I want a certain taste. So let's I'm just a, say— I'm like, a flavor fiend. This is, let's just put it in a non-commercial space. This is just your personal, like, you. let's say you're growing your own. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm growing for terpenes. Yeah. Next, <coughs> what would be the next factor for you? Yield. You know, and, and in a certain sense, yield comes first because if you have amazing terpenes and your yield is negligible— it's not going to be viable for you to do that. It just doesn't make sense. Like we have to be real, you know, you can grow one of those plants, you know, and I did that for years and I grew and I would still do it, you know, grow one of those plants in the corner because, you know, you want it for your head, but is it going to be enough to supply, you know, your friends? If we're talking about a personal level or, or is it going to be enough to last you for what you need, you know, for your allotment of medicine? Is it going to be enough to last you for what you want, you know, to smoke on a daily basis? You know, if it's, you know, whatever your purpose for utilizing it is, it might not be viable. So, you know, I I don't want to really weight it by yield compared to. Again, it might be different in a different situation, like on a commercial level. It might be different than on a personal level. Yeah, and on a commercial level, like like I'm saying, we're sourcing genetics that yield a certain percentage that have a certain terpene profile right. with a certain potency and cannabinoid profile. Like that's our goal. Right. And I have five, you know, to ten of those strains that I've been curating that I want for specific reasons. Right. You know? On that note, what's your ultimate favorite hash making strain if you had to pick one? That's the hardest question of them all. You know, the stranded island question, right? You know, there's variables to that question, too, you know? Like, I've just got enough of it to, like, just keep going. <sighs> I'll let you decide the variables, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. 
I I don't think it exists yet, and I'm working on it. Cool. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. So and it's really hard to decide between. Or it's really hard to decide on one. In all honesty, like I'm that guy that smokes a different spliff every single time. You know, like I'm like if I'm down to like one or two jars of something, <laughs> like I'm. It's not really cool. I I and call me, you know, blessed. I guess or whatever you want. But I, it's it's an addiction. It's a terpene addiction. <laughs> Really is what it is. I'm gonna break down and tell you I have a problem. Um, chasing. But yeah, I, I like to smoke a different flavor every single time. You know, and of course, like if I've gone through like five or six flavors, I'll go back to one, you right. know, or whatever, you know. What I'm not like crazy, crazy. <laughs> but I really like smoking different flavors, you know, because for like a long time, OG, all I wanted. Ten years straight. That's the only thing I wanted. And still to this day, I smoke at least two or three OG splits a day. At least. And then some lemon OG. And, you know, and there's some OG and another cross that I like, you know. But, uh, yeah, I've been loving a lot of strains lately, man. Lemon, that lemon rind terpene I always talk about. We've got some things in the works. I'm breeding some things with a buddy of mine. or I'm not breeding, sorry. I'm selecting some things with a buddy of mine. Got some things like that. And I've got, you know, a best my best friend for... 15 years I've been finding males or finding females and getting seeds to my buddy and he's been breeding amazing gear forever he still has some of the original males that we found or seeds you know seed packs you know that he's using in his breeding he's doing some amazing things you know I do like a lot of the gelato crosses that are out there man there's so many so many good things out there right now. Yeah, One of my hard. favorite things like is this like blue marker terp that I just keep coming across everywhere I go. Like I got a few things in my bag right now that have a similar terpene to that. One of the first times I tasted this terpene, this flavor was it was called Sativa number 17 and it came from Ward, Colorado and that's all I knew. Ward, Colorado is this mountain town up above Boulder, and there was a lot of growing happening, so much so that, like, you know, like the town knew about it. It was surviving off of, right. off of cannabis growth. Like, the water supply started getting fucked up due to people flushing nutrients, you know, that type of thing. You right. know, it was like, yeah, yeah, news, it was in the newspapers and stuff. So, but yeah, back in the day, well, this is well, well before that, that, back in the day, Ward was just this cool, you know, hippie town I would get some fire from. I got this sativa in the number 17, and Ward's like high up elevation. Okay. Uh, I don't know if it's 1500. Maybe, maybe, a, I don't know, seven, seven K to 15. I don't know. Somewhere around there. I don't know. I'm horrible. That's <laughs> cool. But um, it's up there. And there's something about altitude that just does something for the structure of a plant. And, you know, it just brings me back. So the sativa number 17 had this crazy blue marker. And I say blue marker, like the smelly markers from when you were a kid. Right. You know, and it also kind of combines with like a, a fuely raspberry type taste, you know, like my, my taste buds pick up some of that, you know, with some suggestion, you get more fruit in it, but it's a unique flavor. I found it in a few things, you know, recently where it's like similar to that flavor, completely different structure than the sativa number 17. That okay. I got but it's some of the but, terpenes. Uh, are- yes. Yeah, so terpenes are really, really similar. And 
I don't know how to really describe it, this flavor, to be completely honest. Sin City Seeds has a blue power, and they bred with that, and that really, really brings through that, that flavor, and I believe it's got some blue moonshine in it. Okay. Which goes back, and you know, then there's even some DJ Short blueberry crosses that I'm getting that flavor with. Like this, yeah, this, this pink Starburst has slight, slight flavor, you know, that blue flavor. It's different, though. It's pink. Would you like to <laughs> you see that? You can almost taste a, colors, is what I'm saying, you know? Would you like um, to see that in the hash string? Huh? Would you like to see those terpenes in the hash string? Yeah, and we, we have. Oh, yeah, you yeah, have? Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 for sure. Like, I mean, we ran, we ran that Blue Power in Colorado for years. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and it did well for us. The growers didn't like growing it as much as we liked running it. Right. Was, you know, yeah, the one, one, one issue. So, you know, it just became less and less for us, which right. was really sad for me. <laughs> it was my favorite. Oh, another similar terpene profile to go back to Amsterdam circa 2001, 2004. Uh-huh. Any Day Cafe. It was this kind of Rostaran cafe back in the day. Yeah, um, they had this strain called Stella Blue. Yeah, I remember that strain. And the, the hash from Stella Blue, they call Master Blaster. Okay. It was a little in-house thing. I don't know who was doing it. I don't think they were actually doing it, you know, but right. but that had a little bit of that blue marker. And now Dara, previously, or Devil's Harvest Seeds, Dara, based on what he's going by right now, I apologize. But he has a uh, shoreline cut. And it's like, it's on the borderline of that blue marker, almost mixed with Blue Dream. Like, I hate to say it like that, you know, but it's just a fuzzier blue marker or more of a velvety blue marker. I love it. I fucking love it. And I don't like Blue Dream. So don't, you know, get it twisted. I'm not really trying to compare it, but it's just, it's like, yeah, it's something unique, that shoreline. I mean, he's doing some cool breeding projects with that right now in Europe. So Cool. Yeah. You've been in the industry for a long time now, you know, uh, whether it was in a legal market or not, if you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice at the beginning with the experience you have now, what would it be? If there could be like a singular thing, I suppose. Man, really trust my intuition. Yeah, that's a good one. Have there been times that you haven't done that? Yes. Yeah. And it's gotten me into bad situations. Cool. Well, I think that's probably a good piece of advice for a lot of people, you know? Yeah, take initiative. I feel like I've taken initiative, but I could always take more initiative. It's a brand new space. It's a brand new industry. Do something new. Be proactive. Cool. Those are the things. So if the string question was hard, this one might be harder. Three favorite hash makers. Three kings. Oh, man. Three favorite hash makers. Holy fuck. All right. Mila, Doc Hazed, and Mile High Melts. Cool. And maybe for the people that aren't as familiar with him, Doc Hazed, based out of Barcelona. Yes. And I keep up with him as well, and he also seems to do a lot of sift work. Yep. Yep. And he's just a super, super humble, humble, giving guy. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know him like the best. I've just been interacting with him over the last two or three years now. But um, him and his girlfriend as well. His girlfriend does a lot of the work. 
for wee flowers and wee extracts. But yeah, they're just both amazing. They're just both super, super, super humble, amazing artists and good people and really attentive to detail. They're also selecting their own phenos. They're doing their own in-house things and, you know, for, for we flowers. And yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's really cool to see people pushing the envelope. Yeah, no, that's cool. I, I actually would love to have one of the Spanish guys on. Um, There's so many other Spanish guys I want to put on that list. I mean, like the La Sagrada fam, like I was mentioning, you know, creating THCA crystals out of water hash before it's even rosined and stuff like they're doing right, with crazy the things. Bond, yeah. yeah 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 and premiere pre- yeah premiere with some of his selections yeah la sagrada fam slight at hq is crushing right now my homie edu is fucking slaying yeah, blue ice yeah doing things in spain and now working for cookies in la and yeah just it's yeah, it's really hard to put three out there. Yeah. There's Cuban who I love, you know, to death. I love his hash. I love his sift. There's home growers that like only like I want to only smoke their grown in, you know, when they make the hash, you know, and stuff. And fuck some of the batches from my homie Resin Ranch been stupid. Man. So many, so many, so many good yeah, ones. Yeah, it's tough. So, I mean, and, this actually segues maybe into the next question. Is and like, is it like, do I, can I talk about <laughs> brands and some of my favorite brands? No, it's like, because, you know, the consistency is cool when you have a brand. But, you know, yeah, I love some of the home home hash makers for sure. And there's, there's so many for that list, bro. That's hard. Yeah, it's a tough question. But I appreciate you answering it. So, last question. And this might... Kind of play in well with the last one, you know. I'll condense it even more now. If you got to hear from one person on this show that you'd like to hear from, who would it be? One person? Like, for me to interview. Okay. Like, who would you like to hear on the show? The next next one. Or like, you know. Yeah, down the line. All right, cool, cool, cool. Huh. All right, that's a great question. I would like you to interview Robert Connell Clark. Cool. Yeah. It's your the second one, I think. Adam, I don't. I think simply Adam. Yeah. He also yeah. wanted to hear from him. Mila also mentioned him, and I've been actually reading his book recently, Hashish. So yeah, I definitely would like to talk to him. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like it's kind of an important person to talk to if you're doing a thing about hash, you know. Yeah. So cool. Well, Nick, man, I know I've taken up a lot of your time. I'm super appreciative. I think people are going to be real grateful. Again, this is kind of like an extra edition of the show that we don't normally put out, but being 420, we wanted to do something kind of big with you. So again, I'm, I'm super appreciative. If you want to follow Nick on Instagram, it's at Nika, that's N-I-K-K-A, double underscore T. You can also follow Essential Extracts at Essential Extracts LLC and Essential Extracts California for now. Is there anything else you wanted to say, Nick? No, man, I'm really, I'm giving thanks for you having me on this program. Yeah, just stay tuned for lots of big projects coming in the future. As far as the equipment side of things, as far as essential extracts, the brand moving to a plethora of other states and just uh, continuing to spread the knowledge. That's what it's about. Either, you know, I'm bringing the brand or I'm bringing my knowledge and that's what I'm doing. Cool, well... 
I wish you success in everything that you do, man. And everybody, I appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, again, hope you have a great 420, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.